And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition and another year of The Other Side of Midnight. Yes, everyone, boys and girls, gerbils and germs, as Jimmy Durante used to say, it's another year. It's 2022. And, you know, um, science is supposed to be nothing if it's not prediction. And we're going to be making some New Year's predictions tonight, hopefully based on actual real data. Um, So we're going to kind of move through the morning, and this will come up kind of naturally so we don't have to get all hot and bothered. Um, We are broadcasting, as usual, from the uh, studio here in this adobe hacienda perched on the edge of a gorgeous cliff with the sandias glimmering in the background when there's a moon and there is no moon tonight because I think it's either a new moon, meaning the moon is kind of between the earth and the sun or it's close to, so you can't see anything out there um, except for the thermometer, which is outside the studio window. And I kid you not, it is a very frigid 19.5 degrees Fahrenheit. And you can feel it. I mean, this is an old house and the windows have not been changed in a very long time. I mean, I used to live back east where we lived in colonials, which were built in the 1700s, or uh, thank you, Georgia, or, you know, at the latest in the 1800s. But these houses, you know, were built, you know, like 50 some years ago. And uh, unless you replace the windows in a very dry desert climate, uh, cracks develop in adobe and mortar in wood. And so it's a little bit drafty. So from time to time, you may hear this in the background. This is one of the fans I have. I actually have a heater so I can keep my toesies warm because, you know, cold air sinks, warm air rises. Well, you know all that. Anyway, tonight what we're going to do is an overview of where are we in perhaps the most extraordinary experiment that I have ever been involved in, and I've got some really cool players on the Amuamua team to help me go through tonight. We had we did have one casualty. We were going to introduce you to a new player. Unfortunately, um, he came down with something, and we talked this afternoon, and his voice was in no way, shape, or form uh, ready for prime time, let alone even this time of the night. So I said, gently, go to bed. You know, take to aspirin, call me in the morning, and we're going to touch base midweek, and hopefully he'll be back on his feet um, uh, by next weekend. And so we will do an update again next Saturday on the decoding, because the most extraordinary thing about this is, A, we're getting real data. We're getting intelligent transmissions, and we will be going through this morning with um, how we know that. And item number two, um, we know they're in code. And some of the codes have been decoded. Um, David uh, Sarita is going to regale us with some new, really, really remarkably important information, which will kind of feed into the things I want to talk to Georgia about tonight, which is why I invited her back. And uh, John Womack has been also doing separate decoding and separate... um, uh, spectral analysis, and he's got lots of interesting examples. So um, we'll get into all that in a few minutes, but I want to start by those of you who are new to the show, 
we have a phenomenon, a section of the broadcast called Radio with Pictures. The way you get to it is you uh, click on our URL. I presume you're listening on a smartphone, so it can do more than one thing. If you're listening on your smartphone and sitting in front of your computer, it's even better because some of these images are you know, kind of like big and you want to see the details and all that. So what you want to do is you want to click on the other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's banner, which says, Amuamua, what have we learned so far with the Enterprise Amuamua team there in full regalia? Click on that. That will take you to our guest page. And right under that banner, you will see um, what it says, fast links to items. My name, David's name, John's name, and George's name. Click on my name. That will take you automatically down to my section, uh, about a third of the way down the page, so you can see my items. Item number one. Now, we're going to be featuring this uh, for the next several weeks. You'll notice that the item that we've had at the top of the news for you know, since September, the status of La Palma, that that's missing tonight. The reason it's missing, I mean, kind of like for old time's sake, I was going to put it up there just so you can see that they've officially called a halt to the emergency around the eruptions and the gas emissions and the ash clouds and even the uh, earthquakes in La Palma like last week. And the website's missing. They closed it down. So the government... Uh, of the Canaries, of the of La Palma specifically, obviously must be very confident in their geophysics, in their geologists, given the fact that volcanoes are inherently extraordinarily unpredictable. That's an interesting act of faith on someone's part, but there was no live website to link to. So uh, if they're sounding the all clear, I will tentatively go along with them, but obviously I'm going to keep an eye on La Palma because we are living through strange times. I do not need to repeat that. We are definitely living through strange times, as will become apparent as we go through this morning's conversation. So the first item in my items in Radio with Pictures is about the Webb Space Telescope. Webb was launched literally a week ago on Christmas Day, and on the first day of the new year, it's almost halfway to its orbiting point, which will be around the so-called L2 position, which is opposite the sun on the night side of the Earth, about a million miles away from the planet. And the reason they're putting it there, and it's not going to be at a point, it's going to be kind of orbiting around a center of mass is because that's one of the five equilibrium points in a two-body system, in this case, the sun and the earth, where something can be established in a semi-stable orbit, and it will kind of orbit around the center of mass as the earth orbits the sun. It will stay locked in this kind of halo orbit around the center of the L2 point, by a few thousand miles. There are a couple of other human spacecraft in the same vicinity. And before you get all hot and bothered and say, oh, collision, no, no. And so Hura said in one episode, it's a big galaxy, Mr. Scott. In fact, it's really a big solar system. 
So even though they are within a few thousand miles of each other, think of two little gnats orbiting in a stadium the size of the uh, Colosseum in Rome or, or uh, you know, let's say one of the football stadiums uh, in Houston or back east. So the odds of anything colliding with anything, even if we have a couple of other things parked in that same vicinity, is infinitesimal. Um, so it's safe there, and it's about halfway to there. And if you go to item number one, this is a daily update. In fact, it's even more than daily. It's um, it, it it's actually sometimes they update uh, several times a day, depending upon the timeline for unfolding the mechanical elements of this extraordinarily complex space telescope, which is basically like Ruber Goldberg on stereo. And if you don't know what that reference is to, you have Google. So Google Rube Goldberg and have fun. Um, tomorrow on Sunday, on January 2nd, according to this official James Webb Space Telescope website, courtesy of our friendly local neighborhood space agency, i.e. NASA, they are going to begin work on what's called the tensioning of the tennis court-sized Kevlar aluminized sun shield, which comes in five layers that will be separated by several inches to allow heat to be screened by reflection from the actual telescope and then radiate sideways through each layer. So the first layer gets the brunt of the sunlight. Um, there's actually a companion website that I didn't list tonight, and I will do that uh, um, you know, sometime between now and next weekend, where you can actually see temperature sensors on the sun side and on the cold side. And there's this incredible differential. I think the high temperatures on the, on the telescope assembly facing the sun are like 90-some degrees, and the low temperature on the shadow side, which is now in the shade of this extended sun shield, even before the layers have been deployed and the tensioning is put in place, the low temperature on the, on the night side in the shadow, in the vacuum, as this spacecraft is cruising at several thousand miles uh, per hour toward the L2 point, um, is on the order of 300 plus below zero Fahrenheit. So there's a differential between the sun side and the night side already, even with the partial uh, deployment of the shield, of something like 400 degrees. That's only 50 degrees above absolute zero. And the temperatures on the night side, when they you know, get everything in place and they get the, the, the shield separated, so there's this nice you know, vacuum uh, between the layers and only radiation, that is EM radiation, infrared, can pass between the layers. Because, of course, in space in a vacuum, there's no um, convection, there's no air to convect. That's physical movement of air that moves heat around. And there is very little um, um, conduction because of the spars holding the shield together and connecting it to the telescope are made of a very, very non-conductive 
thermally non-conductive material. So the heat transfer by solid conduction uh, through the beams is very, very, very low. I mean, this is an extraordinary feat of engineering. And so far, something like 107 of the membrane release devices that were necessary um, have all worked perfectly. And that's out of 178 in all on the telescope. So we're really ahead of the curve. Um, everything except for one little sensor glitch where they couldn't tell whether um, a, uh, a um, sun shield um, that was keeping the, um, uh, actually they're called sun shield covers that were keeping the sun shield at the right temperature before deployment. Uh, they had one of those that they didn't really understand from the sensor whether it had deployed or not, you know, kind of rolled up like a window shade out of the way. And then they had two other measurements which said, yes, in fact, it had worked. So everything is working extraordinarily well in this infernally complex machine, which is, you know, something like half a million miles away from the Earth tonight and moving away, at, as, I, as I said, several tens of thousands, of, well, not tens of thousands, probably up in the order of eight or 9,000 miles per hour now because as it moves uphill away from Earth's gravity and the sun's gravity, it has been slowing. Remember, in normal space travel with today's primitive rockets, it's all fuss and fury in the beginning and then you coast. And like anything thrown uphill, you know, as you move further from the gravitational source, your energy bleeds away, gravity reclaims you. But in this case, the uh, spacecraft is moving exactly on its planned trajectory, and it will not slow down until it gets about a million miles away from the Earth in the direction ant anti the sun, away from the sun on the night side of, ah, uh, let's see, we've got about uh, 15 minutes till the bottom of the hour. So let me kind of swing into what we're doing. About a month ago, on the 4th of December, we initiated something which apparently had not been done specifically relating to this specific celestial visitor any time in the previous four years. In the fall of uh, 2017, in October, an very unusual object called a Muamua by NASA was discovered uh, at the Pan-STARRS telescope facility located atop uh, uh, the, one of the high field volcanoes in the island chain of Hawaii. And from then, this object was tracked, and very quickly it was obvious that it had never been to this solar system before, that in fact it was an interstellar visitor. For the first time in modern scientific history, and it was verified quickly because of its velocity, it plunged down toward the solar system from the direction of the northern hemisphere constellation of Lyra, the harp, at about a 33-degree angle to the plane of the ecliptic, the plane uh, in which most of the planets, except for Pluto, uh, orbit the sun, kind of like a old-fashioned flat LP record. Now, it's not a perfect plane. There is some slight tilt of the orbits by a degree or two between 
each other to that plane. But basically, uh, this was measured relative to the Earth's plane, uh, and 33 degrees turns out to be an incredibly significant angle in the whole hyperdimensional model. Well, even more intriguing, remember, the way you do these kind of calculations is you look for significant numbers, and then you look for other numbers, and then you multiply the odds of these separate numbers coming up again and again and again. And when you when you kind of run through the Amuamua calculation, we're up in the order of trillions to one that any of this stuff can be accidental. So based on these numbers, for instance, in addition to that 33 degree uh, angle, which resolves in an equation to 19.5, as I've done many times on the show, it turned out that as a muamua coming down at an extraordinary speed in excess of uh, uh, escape velocity from the sun, making a almost right-hand turn around the sun at about, um, well, a very significant distance from the sun, which I'll like, let uh, David talk about, at its closest approach to the sun, it was making that screaming left-hand turn. It was moving at about 195 thousand miles per hour and if that number sounds familiar one nine five thousand well forget the thousands one nine five nineteen point five the way this game is played is you get rid of the decimal points and you look at the string of numbers so that was two data points that said to me nineteen point five oh this has to be an emissary not a natural object not an asteroid not a comet not some bizarre celestial phenomenon never seen by terrestrial astronomy before, but a deliberately sent visitor to this solar system at this particular time, not only in human history, but at this particular time in the 26,000 year, give or take, processional cycle, which modulates the physics of the earth, both biology and consciousness and geophysics and atmospheric physics and energy input and output, all these things are invisibly modulated by the precession of the earth um, on its axis in roughly 26,000 years. So again, that's another weirdness that you multiply the odds that this unique artificial visitor as defined by too many of the right numbers showing up in its orbital calculations, in its trajectory, in its whip around the sun. You add to that the fact that it didn't just wander by at any old time. It wandered by literally as we were transitioning from one processional Vedic era to the next period of transition. And again, as we'll be talking about this morning, I don't think any of this is an accident. So I formulated an idea which was basically, okay, this is an artificial object sent by somebody at this time in our history, obviously somebody concerned with humans and our history, and who better than maybe some extended interstellar members of the family or in one variant of the model, was it possible, I thought, and I don't know whether I said this on the air, 
But was it possible that many thousands of years ago, we literally sent this to ourselves, that a previous high-tech culture, knowing what would happen in terrestrial history and knowing the cycles of cosmic time, particularly the processional cycle, knew that if a time capsule containing crucial information for our civilization now were set up so that it would wander into our ken now when we need it the most to make a successful transition to the next age, the next era, the next phase of human consciousness and development, that it would be sent to us by us on this extraordinary time scale in something which is the most repeatable of any physical phenomenon in the 3D universe, which is essentially an orbit, a very, very, very extended orbit. In other words, it was a time capsule in this model sent to us by us from ourselves. And I approached Oumuamua from that perspective. So I watched with real interest um, a bunch of things that happened. First of all, there was a, um, a, a listening effort funded by a major oligarch, Russian oligarch who is now living in Northern California, who actually rented time on one of the world's biggest radio telescopes, the uh, 140-foot uh, radio facility in Green Bank, West Virginia, and listened for about a week and heard, according to all public statements and press releases and uh, reports, heard absolutely nothing. At that time, kind of one part of me said, well, if this is something on the order of a classic 1960s literature Bracewell probe, named after uh, Ronald Bracewell, who was an engineer, a radio communications engineer uh, at Stanford, I think he was at the Stanford uh, labs. Um, he had formulated an idea in the 1960s, interstellar civilizations, when they wanted to probe their nearest star systems, instead of, instead of sending radio, which would require a very long time, and there would have to be an intelligent civilization in a star system that would be able to you know, send a signal. If you send a signal to, let's say, Alpha Centauri, it would take four years for an intelligent civilization to send a signal back. Bracewell said, well, wouldn't it be cheaper to kind of just salt all the nearer stellar systems with robotic AI-type probes, have them park themselves in orbit, and just wait for evidence of life, advanced life, on one of the planets in the star system? We'd have to have a very sophisticated AI probe to do that, but given the rate of which we now know that AI is progressing, uh, in, even in Bracewell's time in the 60s, it was extrapolatable that that kind of computer power and that kind of artificial intelligence, um, I mean, look at the, the writings of Isaac Asimov, you know, robots, things like that. It was not beyond the realm of science that at some point in, let's say, 100 years, we, the human race, could do this. So if you were encountering a civilization living on a planet, let's say, three, four hundred light years away, even if you were limited by the speed of light and you could send a probe maybe at the tenth the speed of light, it would take a few thousand years to get here. 
it would go into orbit. Um, if it had arrived here, you know, a few thousand years ago, um, and it was appropriately long-lived, which you can do with backups and redundant systems, and even the ability to self-manufacture uh, replacement parts, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, real AI is going to be really interesting to, to watch develop. The idea of Bracewell was, well, at some point, we might, in terms of Earth science, NASA, et cetera, find a Bracewell probe orbiting somewhere in our own solar system, and we would talk to it because the signal-to-noise would be infinitely better than trying to talk between the stars directly. And then the probe, with its advanced facilities, would in turn transmit that data back to its home system, where if you turn the idea around, and we did this kind of uh, experiment, we could build in the ability to make large antennas and, you know, create lasers and all kinds of ways of, again, within mainstream science of getting the data home. So given that that was part of the scientific literature and given that there were people actually talking in the mainstream, like Abby Loeb, who then was head of the Harvard College Observatory um, and was very, uh, uh, you know, out front saying that, this thing, Oumuamua, could in fact be some kind of sentient probe or maybe a spacecraft containing inhabitants that had come through the system, uh, perhaps more like Rama in Arthur C. Clarke's uh, brilliant trilogy, Rendezvous with Rama, which I recommend to everyone um, for what would happen if, let's say, this thing had wandered through the system in 100 years. Probably would be very, very different if we have the capability of human spaceflight to literally rendezvous, meaning match velocities with something moving around the sun at 195,000 miles an hour, rendezvous with it, land on it, and go inside. Imagine if we could do that now. Well, at the moment, we can't do that, but uh, there may be uh, interesting developments on the horizon that will allow us to do this even now with a muamua not waiting for the next visitor to call. Anyway, against this backdrop, the thing that occurred to me that was missing from this public dialogue, including uh, Abby Loeb, was the idea inherent in the Bracewell model that someone on Earth should try to talk to it. So through a rather complex set of circumstances that uh, kind of fell out uh, in a very interesting I might almost say metaphysical way. Um, we put together a team, and we have some of the team members with us tonight, to literally do what apparently no one had done before with a muamua. Basically put together a program of radio transmission and literally send a signal to a muamua to see if anybody was at home. And this is what it sounded like. This is our transmission sent for the first time, December 4th, then December 11th, then the 18th, and then the 24th, 25th, and 26th, the Christmas weekend.
when we come back, what I'm going to do is to tell you, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Because the story is only getting, as Alice said in Wonderland, curiouser and curiouser and curiouser. So on the anniversary of a new year, it seemed to me that this would be an appropriate way to begin our conversation. You're on the other side of midnight, our first show of 2022. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and when we return, we will have four of the Enterprise Mission Amuamua team here to talk about what we've found. Happy New Year, everyone. So suddenly they discovered this thing called deuterium. They've actually shown studies that depleting the water by 30% actually makes mice thrive and grow faster and increasing the deuterium in water by 30% kills it. So in every liter of water, there's approximately six drops of deuterium. Well, if we were to put six drops of cyanide in our water, we probably wouldn't make it. A poison is a poison. Now, this is an isotope, so this is a radioactive, but it is stable. But I believe deuterium serves many, many, many purposes. The history, really, what we should know is the global must have an agenda. And their agenda is to keep us as dumbed down as possible and so we don't recognize what they do and we comply. Part of the way of doing that is keeping it sick. Most water is about 155. But anything about 120 actually can affect us from literally a psychosis level and it's affecting our pineal gland and our pituitary gland and, of course, our right brain. So what happens is Excess deuterium makes it sick. Even on the National Institute Health website, they talk about deuterium helping propagate leukemia. And that's them admitting it. They always have to disclose their BS. That's them admitting it. So you can imagine the other things that it does to our body. It, we don't resonate. We don't sleep very well. I think it is the single biggest tool that the globalists, the cabal, is the biggest tool they have that puts us in a state 
that we don't recognize anything and we don't resonate and vibrate at the highest level possible. Hello, Lewis Herms here. Wow, what a fantastic time on the other side of the news with the eclectic cast. What incredible information, and I was so happy to be here. This is a week after Christmas, but Jay, I only get to play this song, which is one of my favorite songs, like once a year. And um, it's so appropriate. It is so appropriate that, uh, that we play this tonight because what we're looking at is something in the sky which appears to be, well, if it's not a Christmas star, it's a the closest thing that I can imagine. It's something that if we pursue this research, if we basically follow this like the wise men to uh, Bethlehem, if we follow this where it's leading, it could lead us to something which could transform the earth. I mean, there are literally people in NASA who are, who are, talking about what would happen if they find extraterrestrial life in 2022. And as I'm going to talk a bit about tomorrow night, they've actually gone to a, a body of theologians, something like 24 or 25, to ask them to kind of look at what could happen to humankind, to religions, to Christianity, to the Muhammad faith, to, the, to you know, Buddhism, to... I mean, it's kind of like Brookings all over again. What would happen if the human race discovers unequivocal evidence that it is not alone? And that, of course, is what the Christmas star story was kind of all about. Okay, I got it out of my system. Um, all right, let me introduce our, our cast of characters tonight because uh, we have a very interesting uh, cadre of people. Um, we've got David Sarita with us. Uh, David is kind of like the lead investigator on this uh, uh, enterprise mission experiment. He's been doing uh, sacred geometry, sacred numbers, frequencies, symbolic encoding, ancient history translations, finding measurements, uh, that relate to these, uh, I won't say magical, but they really are because we know that the same frequencies and the same geometry that David's been dealing with for several decades are in fact part 
of the hyperdimensional radical physics model, which explains kind of everything the mainstream thinks they know and then goes beyond it. So uh, uh, David was one of the guys that I talked to first, and it was our first conversation that uh, made me wonder, well, what if we were to do something really outrageous? And with his friend Jimmy Blanchett, what if we were to take that radio telescope facility in northern Arizona and point it toward a Muamua and send some of the right codes and frequencies, which apparently none of the mainstream folks, the Breakthrough Listen Project, the government, the deep state, whatever, we have no public knowledge that during Muamua's passing through the inner solar system, anybody tried sending. So I thought, why don't we try sending, given that we have something unique and incredibly relevant and incredibly um, anchored in terrestrial human history, um, why don't we try sending that and see if we get a response? And as we go through the morning, for those of you who are new and joining us, uh, we got a response, but it certainly wasn't like anything that uh, I'd expect. Uh, maybe David has a different perspective, but uh, uh, we're getting things that, uh, frankly, are not in my can with dealing with technology, with SETI transmissions, with classical SETI models, SETI being the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. So we also have Jonathan Womack with us. Uh, John has been exploring the universe with remarkable personal out-of-body experiences since 1965. And that's not the only reason that he's on the panel tonight. He also is one hell of a producer. He is conversant with computer technologies, with algorithms, with software that can take frequencies and display them in visual form so we can see if there is, in, in fact, intelligent encoded information in what we're getting. And there is, you know, but that's a rest. There is un, unequivocally. But do we know yet the full spectrum, pun intended, of what they, whoever they are, are trying to tell us? No, we don't. And John is going to be leading us through some further analysis that he's done in the, in the last week. We also had Georgia Lambert with us. Now, Georgia, I keep saying she's our resident metaphysician. And you might be asking, well, what is Georgia doing being on a SETI communications team with an errant spacecraft sailing one time through the solar system, leaving in the direction of Pegasus, never to return? Well, that gets into the whole question, who are we talking to, really? Because part of the results, and we will kick this around tonight among uh, uh, all of us, we may not be dealing with ETs in the standard model. As you're going to hear, our first responses were not classical ET SETI responses, as would be expected under any of those historical models going back to uh, Bracewell in the 1960s. So George is here to kind of introduce some different perspectives in a conversation that, frankly, I think is going to encompass multidimensionality, metaphysics, <clears throat> spirituality, and things that go bump in the night. And final but not least is Ron Gerbrun. Ron is our resident generalist. He has background in both metaphysics, archaeology, 
ancient archaeological systems, uh, epistemology, you name it, and Ron knows something uh, about it. And he's very good at synthesizing different bits of information into a gestalt, into a whole. And that is not an H-O-L-E, it's a W-H-O-L-E, because the whole tonight is so mysterious. Um, first of all, let me welcome all of you to the other side of midnight once again. Thank you, Richard. It's great to Thanks. be here. Thanks, Richard. And for people, that, for people who may not Thanks, know your Richard. voices, if, if you can identify for the first couple of times who you are so people can kind of get to know the voices, that'd be useful. Um, David said yes, he's here. Yeah, this is David Sarita here, and uh, Happy New Year to everybody. Ah, way. yes, yes. And John is here. John is here. <laughs> oh, did I forget to mention John is a musician? Oh. So frequencies come second nature. Georgia is here. Hello. Hi there. Get a little closer to your mic. And finally, last but not least, uh, Ron, you're in down in San Diego, where I understand it's kind of chilly tonight. Oh, uh, yes. Not the, as uh, chilly we- as here. <laughs> well, no. The weather's gone to hell. And as usual, I don't know where I am, uh, ah. but I'm here. Okay. David, let's start with you. Um, this harebrained idea has turned up such serendipitous uh, discoveries that I'm almost at a loss of where to begin, given that you've been on this trail of ET contact or, or as Michael Hill says nicely, you know, contact with folks that are not from here. What kind of a tiger, by what kind of tail do you think we've got? Well, let me just start with a little bit of a quick recap. You know, having read Avi Loeb's book, Extraterrestrial, which is the Harvard astronomer who speculates that Amuamua was an extraterrestrial visitor, he first states that the brightness of the object was 10 times brighter than any rock, so he deducts that it's metallic, and therefore the artist's you know, sketches of it looking like a long rock would be inaccurate. He said there's a 92% chance it's disc-shaped, <clears throat> and so that's the data you have, plus you have the, the, the sudden acceleration and the lack of comet tail. There's no cometing tail. And so therefore, it, it, all these theories about it being um, a type of comet that doesn't have a tail really didn't add up when you looked at all the data. And it also, its data on its ratio to width to length is 1 to 5 to 1 to 10. That's a pretty huge range. But generally speaking, Avi said, um, rocks don't travel great distances with a long um, shape like that because they'll hit something and break up into a much shorter <clears throat> width to length ratio. So, so it's very odd, and it definitely, in his opinion, was an extraterrestrial visitor. And I noted that its ratio, when it came its closest distance to Earth at 24,200,000 kilometers, the ratio to one astronomical unit, which is which is an Earth-Sun distance, which whose average is 149,597,870, that ratio is 1 to 6.18, <clears throat> and that's golden number. And remember, if we get rid of our decimal and we just look at the numbers, 
that's 10 times 0.618, which is the golden portion of the golden ratio, 1 to 1.618. So you would say that is incredibly well organized and not random by any means. And that is a fact that, that I discovered myself. And then now we have Comet Leonard um, appears to also have a golden <clears throat> function. It will reach its closest point to the sun um, on January 3rd in, in two days. So are these, are these being organized? Are they being controlled remotely like some type of AI? Or, or, or do they have an occupant? So it was our idea to use Jimmy Blanchett's antenna, and I designed a series of messages, as well uh, did Jimmy Blanchett, to send to Oumuamua December 24th, 25th, and 26th, 2021. And the message went as high as a half a million watts, um, to the target. The target Amuamua is presently about 3.7 hours at the speed of radio or the speed of light, all the same. And also you have to consider this. This is well documented in physics, which is called action at a distance, that, that when photons are entangled or electrons are entangled, they have proven that they communicate with each other circumventing the speed of light limit instantly. So, so therefore, the very fact that Oumuamua was so close to Earth at one point, and now it's much further away, any light that left Oumuamua that entangled, that shared itself with us, is entangled with it, and therefore, it is, it is possible to communicate through some function of the radio um, technology or radio spectrum that we don't know about faster than light, because our responses were measured both faster than light and again at the speed of light. And, and I did my tests where what I do is I record on a TASCAM with a good AKG microphone, my radio, which is tuned to the same frequency as the transmission, 144.1 megahertz, and, and Jimmy repeated it at 432 megahertz, so I have two radios. And I record the chirps, we have a video link up, I believe, on your site tonight, which shows how I do this very briefly. Yeah, let me interrupt. Um, I've, I've got it racked up here. Let me play for people that may not have been following this from the beginning, the December 4th responses. Keith put this together for me, and what mm -hmm. we'll play is the original, what you call chirps, which are responses on this handheld Chinese brand uh amateur radio it actually you need a license to transmit on the ham band with this radio but anybody can use it as a receiver so let me play what we got and then i'll describe some background which absolutely uh uh you know clarifies what what david was just saying about uh you know connectedness through some potentially higher dimension so this is what the sound sounds like and then what we did Keith slowed it way down, and you're going to hear it slowed by a factor of, I think, 10 to 1, if I remember this correctly. So this is what our, our, our response the night of the first test transmission, December 4th, uh, sounded like. 
if I can get this working. Of course, every time you want to do something, uh, no, that's not what we want. Sorry, guys. So, see, this is what happens when you're your own engineer. Come on. Play the computer. Here we are. That's original. And that's slow down. One more time. Right. Original. Now slow down. Okay. The thing that makes it so weird is that that night, um, in anticipation of the program, Jimmy started transmitting about a half hour before airtime, about 9.30 Mountain, uh, as opposed to waiting till around 10 o'clock when we went on the air. And within two minutes, he recorded on a video, which is now item number three in my section of radio pictures, which he's put together, a montage of a series of artificial objects, structured objects, vehicles, craft, uh, flying saucers, whatever you want to call them. They weren't cosmic rays. They weren't noise. They were literal structured craft appearing and disappearing within a couple, three frames. And when you zoom in, as the video does, that's item number three in my section, you'll see that they're each individual geometries and they all look different. And the one thing I've not done is to put the whole montage together to see if they basically make an artificial constellation against the sky because these objects photobombed the antenna in the line of sight to Oumuamua, 2.5 billion miles in the dark in that field of view, in the camera field of view, and they deployed themselves in front of that antenna beaming angle during that and then for about three hours uh, after the first appearance. The idea that they appeared within two minutes immediately to me tosses out the window that we're dealing with a technology limited to the speed of light and introduces all kinds of other possibilities, uh, one being the quantum entanglement that, David, you just mentioned, but the other being that we're dealing with not three-dimensional technologies at all, but some kind of hyper-dimensional connection where the vehicles pop from another space into our space, sent transmissions, and then disappeared. And we have yet to correlate the appearance of the signals with the appearance of the craft, uh, and we may have to do that in, in another test transmission in future because we were frankly, none of us, certainly not me, were expecting to almost instantly get responses, and it's the details of the responses that David has been working on decoding, which are absolutely mind-blowing. They're utterly mind-blowing, because when you consider we put 
I put a series of about six or seven tones from the octaves of the Washington, D.C. monument, which is really an Egyptian obelisk built on U.S. soil, and with the theory that it, it actually is a monopole antenna, and a monopole antenna emits a wavelength four times its height. And the height of the Washington Monument itself is actually um, 6,665.125 inches. Because the responses I got on my handheld radio, when it's chirping, I'm holding up a frequency meter. I made a video of what this actually looks like. So if I videotape my frequency meter, when there's a chirp, a number appears and I can freeze it. But I can also go frame by frame through the video of the chirping and pull out the chirps versus the background noise. Now, the background noise produces much smaller numbers. The, the meter I'm using is so sensitive, it'll pick up breathing. It'll pick up any ambient sounds in the room. So I only look at the high numbers. So one of the things that happened, this happened on the 26th of December, and I went into my studio at the speed of white return signal sign, uh, signal transmission from a Muamua, and I started recording. And they kept giving me this same number, which I captured over three times, so it, it demonstrates repetition. The number they sent me was 666.98, and that would be inches. But what's interesting is they can't send me 6,600 and 65.125 inches, they send me basically one-tenth of that. And the difference between the actual Washington Monument um, one-tenth scale would be 99.929%. So the question is, what they sent me was 666.98 inches. So what I do is I treat that as a monopole. So I take that times four which is 2,667.92 inches. I take the speed of light in inches because the way you calculate a frequency is you take the speed of light in the same unit of measure you're measuring your wavelength in. So they have to be the same unit. So if I'm, my wavelength's in inches, my speed of light's in inches. So I divide the speed of light in inches by my wavelength and I get my frequency of 400, uh, it, it is, 4,423,990.478 hertz. So, so I do that. I divide it by a musical octave, which is two, 10 times, and I get to 432, 4,320.3 hertz. So, so what that means is I'm accurate to 432.03 on my sliding 10 scale. Now, the Washington Monument itself gives me as a monopole a frequency of 442,709.351 hertz. I divide that by an octave 10 times, and I'm at 432.333 hertz. Now, we all, we, we all know what 432 is. We've had Michael Hill here. We, we, we understand what a master A note it is. And I also note that I documented the sudden birth of of technological achievement the moment the Washington Monument was born. The moment it's born, we suddenly have the invention of alternating current 
direct current from Thomas Edison, radio, remote control, I, all starts happening within a certain radius of the monument. So, the, so think of the monument as a monopole transmitter that musically, at a very high 432 octave, and all of, these, all of the subsidiary octaves are all coming off of the monument all the way down to 432.33 hertz. And suddenly human consciousness explodes in the upper eastern section of the United States and Canada because Alexander Graham Bell built, invents the telephone right then in the upper eastern Atlantic. So what this demonstrates is the message we get back from Amua Amua is it, it is it's like they want us to go higher instead of a 432 hertz monopole octave they're taking us to 4320 hertz monopole octave transmitter so i believe the message they gave us you see we didn't send them the height of the washington monument we sent them six or seven of its frequencies of its octaves so how the heck did they send me back the Washington Monument measurement <laughs> with a tiny, tiny – is it a correction? <coughs> is it a <coughs> – excuse me, <coughs> an attunement? Drinking water helps. Yeah, I'm, my mouth is getting dry. Yeah, that's why I have water. I'm just so excited. I'm, I'm actually so excited that I can't stand it because this is so 100% in our face – with absolute proof that we got a message back from Oumuamua, if it doesn't mean that they're all, they, they gave me, because of the decimal idea, that they can't send me the exact decimal of, of, of what, the, what the message is, it's just a factor of 10. If I multiply 666.98 inches by 10, then I'm right at the size scale of the Washington Monument, and the difference is tiny actually it's Taylor, a hold, tiny, it, hold it there we're at the top of the hour right there i mean david says we got a message back from a muamua i don't know because this doesn't follow any normal seti protocol which is you send a message at the speed of light by radio you wait the amount of time required you know you double the time message there message back and you record an answer that's that's the model that's the theory Instead, on the night of December 4th, Jimmy begins to send a message, and within minutes, we get answers. We get complex numbers. We get frequencies. We get hyperdimensional constants. We get something which is delving into who we are and what we have been on this planet for thousands and thousands of years immortalized in sacred sites all around the world. So are we talking to a muamua, or are we talking to a network of folks out there just waiting for the human race to respond, for the human race to basically ask the question, who are we really, and what are we doing? in this place. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this January 1st, January 1, 2022, Saturday night here in the Land of Enchantment. And we have members, some, not all, but some members of the uh, Amuamua team with us tonight. Actually, four members, well, actually five if you count Keith Morgan, who in Washington, as part of this, has tried to record and pick up signals from his radio and has heard nothing. Now, why is that? Is it specific to only certain individuals? Is it only specific to certain geographic regions? These are all questions that in the coming weeks we're going to try to answer as we expand our technology. And I want to say right now, if you have an expertise in communications, or in computer theory, or in algorithms, or in software, or in programming, or any of those disciplines, contact us through the contact area on the upper left-hand side of the website. We need help. We need expertise. We need as much diversified expertise to solve this problem as is, uh, as is necessary. So let me, let me expand our, our conversation. Let me bring in Georgia. Because, Georgia, I very deliberately wanted you part of the conversation because with something that happened tonight, I'm beginning to wonder if we're talking to the classic extraterrestrial model or an object like a muamua at all. I'm wondering if we're really talking to consciousness entities that are looking at us from some hyperdimensional perspective and are simply using the primitive means of, quote, radio to give us answers, but they're actually of another realm. Am I nuts? No, you're not nuts. That's a very, very interesting question. It's really interesting, and I think I've mentioned this before, that um, back in the mid-1950s, there was a woman named Lucille Cedarcrantz who was sort of along the metaphysical lineage of Blavatsky, Alice Bailey, that sort of, um, that sort of line. And uh, she wrote about what the Hindus call, of course, the rain cloud of knowable things that overshadows humanity at the turning of each age. For instance, in the last age, the rain cloud of knowable things contained all of that wisdom 
that was to be unfolded within 2,000 years and was sort of downloaded by the great Greek minds who developed schools and approaches to the arts and music and astronomy and, and uh, mathematics and all of that kind of stuff. Well, today we're overshadowed with a new rain cloud of knowable things, as the Hindus would say. And she talked about, back in the 1950s, that uh, part of the early unfoldment of this 2,500-year period would be the discovery of other dimensions and continuity of consciousness after death, and that this would not come through philosophy or religion, as was the case in the last age, but would come through science. Interesting. Did we? Did we? So, go ahead. So, you know. So who knows? I mean, who we're talking to um, is yet to be determined. Wow. Well, um, uh, John, uh, you kind of have, uh, you know, you you have experience in both worlds, both science and metaphysics. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Oh boy, on the metaphysical perspective. I posted a, I didn't post it tonight under my items, but uh, last weekend I, I put a video up and it has a couple of time travel incidents I've had over the years. And um, you can view that on the Mind World Entertainment YouTube channel. But um, yeah, the backstory is when I was, this is around, this is in the late 70s. I discovered Robert Monroe's book and uh, Ingo Swan's book, <clears throat> Starfire, and this compelled me to stretch my research outward from planet Earth, and I hadn't ventured into space at this point. So off I go into space, and I had some very unsettling experiences. There are dangers on the astral plane. You need to be conscientious about what you do. Uh, one case, I went so far away and I was so overwhelmed with the beauty and nature of the universe, I forgot who and where and when I was. And oh, that doesn't sound some... good. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you can get overwhelmed and uh, it took me some time to find my way home. And then in another instance, I... If you watch this video, I've animated it, um, you know, use 3D animation and characters and so forth. And um, I went off in search for alien technology. And I shoot off into space and I, that, I call it the torsion tube or torsion tunnel. Because when you move at the speed of thought, everything blurs around you. It's kind of that tunnel vision. And... I find myself in some unknown structure and there is um, kind of like a circuit board, I guess. Uh, it reminds me of Mars, you know, it's the living technology of the buildings and the planet and so forth. But um, I was stuck and it was some kind of electromagnetic field that I could not move forward or backward spatially. I, I was stuck in place, so <clears throat> I used my little trick of 
thinking myself back, going back through time, you know, it's like a time slip or a time skip. And I focused on going back to the moments before my experiment began. And sure enough, it worked. And I was able to get back in my body and out of this trap via that method. So the metaphysical part of, you know, anybody out there who uh, practices uh, astral projection knows what I'm talking about. You, you need to, uh, I have, I've developed shielding techniques over the, the decades. And that was one experience that, that just led to um, protection, I guess, if, if you want to think of it. So when Oumuamua came along, and I decided to go have a look. I was a little bit tentative just because of back in the 70s from getting caught in that, I call it the 3.58 megahertz trap. Because on a, like a TV circuit board, you use these filters to process the TV signal. And uh, a common filter is a 3.58 megahertz trap. It filters out all the noise from the radio stations and TVs in your area and you're just hearing, you know, you're watching Channel 4 TV or you're just listening to KISS 108 FM or whatever. It, it filters out everything else so that you hear just what you want to hear. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of my metaphysical day. Oh, yeah, so I, I went uh, a few weeks ago. I did an experiment. I, I'm going to go have a look at Oumuamua, but as I said last weekend, I just found myself in a hallway with, um, I believe it was an elder. It could have been an ET, but just a very wise, loving being who was answering all my questions. And I was, I was very happy this was going on and looking forward to sharing some of the answers with you, Richard, and the audience. <laughs> and then my cat woke me up and everything just oh. went on like smoke. Oh, my, my, my. <laughs> Darn. But, uh, yeah, so now on the scientific part of it, I, I've been working on uh, the December 4th chirps that, that were received. Um, first, I took the, you know, I got an MP3 uh, quality file sent to me of these chirps, and the MP3 format it was invented to save disk space. It's a compressed signal. It compresses the analog signal 10 to 12 times, hmm. a power of 10. So you lose. The only thing is you lose some of the, the sound. And the computer... Do, uh, sorry, do you, do you lose high frequencies more selectively or low? Uh, it can be both. It's oh. all of it because the computer decides uh, what you're going. It's called temporal noise shaping, and the computer decides what it's going to cut out because it's, oh, they can't really, humans don't really hear this, so I'm just going to get rid of this part of the sound that they don't hear anyway, and we'll save a bunch of space. I have it all in wave file, by the way, dot, dot wave. Uh, so. Yeah, so I... First, I worked with the um, the file, the MP3 file, just to see what that looked like. You know, it's kind of this is just surface 
uh, processing before you know we get into any real deep dive. But um, I put up some waveforms uh, under my items there of the MP3, and you can see the amplitude waveforms. And uh, in item two, you have the the Hertz waveform, which is shows you the frequencies. And then yeah, I and saved, if, if if you click on these, they all get much bigger. Yes, and number three. Uh, I took the MP3 file and converted it to a WAV file, which is a lossless oh, file format. Oh, look at that! Yeah, the the history of the MP3. I mean, there's a lot of there's some debate, and a lot of audiophiles they will use. There's a song by Susan Vega. Um, the name of the song is Tom's Diner, <laughs> and <laughs> so it's got acapella and it's got music and voice and and um there's a, a let's see what's the gentleman's name he the wave file and all of the thrown out information that the mp3 discarded and decided that humans don't need to hear well he took all of that discarded audio and he put it into a video that you can you can watch online and it's called ghost in the mp3 hmm. like ghost in the machine exactly and when you play it back it's very interesting sound because you just hear all this it almost sounds like they're singing uh, susan vega is singing and playing through kind of veil oh you know, it's just yeah so it's an interesting oral experience i want to get back to your item number three audio spectrum december 4 2021 and remember i look at images i look at geometry and other planets i look at extraterrestrial archaeology the thing that really pops out at me and i don't know how to read this yet you're going to walk us through how to read this three-dimensional tilted graph you know, yep. where, where, where is time zero? On the far left corner? Correct. Okay. Far left corner. Yep. And then the far right bottom corner is what? It says zero, zero, um, zero, 007. What is the zero, 007? Seven? seven seconds? Seven seconds. Yeah, I think this clip is, uh, well, you can watch the clip actually in item four. Okay. Um, well, I, I want to know what, what is from the bottom to the top. On the far left side, there's like a whole bunch of peaky mountains. What are those? Yes. That is frequency. That's the frequency range. I set it, uh, it's like zero to 20,000. Okay, so thousand. zero is at the bottom corner, right? Um, no, zero would just be a, a straight line. No peaks. There would be zero peaks. Okay. So, so as soon as you start getting a sound, it I guess, shows you the frequency. I, I guess I'm yeah. wondering what the what the Y coordinate is from the bottom to the top. I'm not sure what you mean. I'm looking at a canted plane. Along the yes. left are these artificial mountains. Then moving to the right, they get, you know, you just oh. have streaks. And I yes, want to know from the bottom 
to the top is what? Zero frequencies at the bottom? Correct. Or, and, and the top is this, around 20,000? Exactly. As you go left to right across the plane of this audio visualizer. There should be numbers on here. Uh, anyway. I, I didn't add numbers, but okay. I, I will be adding numbers. Yeah, we numbers. need numbers, numbers, numbers. Okay, the thing that really pops out at me, look at the top left corner. Look at those purple mountains and look at that spike and the symmetry between the one wave approaching from the bottom and then the wave on the far side leaving the spike in the middle. When I see that kind of symmetry, it screams at me, artificial, artificial. Hmm. Yes, and one of the things I'll be doing, I'm working on now for next week, is I will take the camera, and we're seeing this graph, this spectrum analyzer from a distance, but I can take the camera, and I can whirl it around, I can zoom in, I can bring the camera down toward the plane, so it's more level with the plane, and you will see these smaller frequencies you know, the bumps and the little mountains, as well as the huge mountains mm-hmm. that, that you see with the purple spikes. And I can color the different frequency levels, too. That's what, you know, the the dark purple, and then you have the white toward the bottom. So if we play number four, we'll hear what we're looking at in number three? Number four is uh, about 20 seconds of chirps that we got on December 4th and normal playback speed. Then there's a minute of the audio spectrum analyzer and you'll, you'll see, I guess that will give you a better idea of what the display is, Richard, if you wanna okay, let me go click ahead and play. On but I used a WAV file on that too, so that we're, there's no loss. We're, we're seeing okay. all the frequencies. All right. yeah. Well, let me hit it. And this is now from December 4th, 2021, the test transmission and then the responses we got back on the handheld radio. Okay. This is the original. So is this just repeating over and over again? Uh, no, that's um, that's just like 20, I think it was 24 seconds. Okay. So that was just real time, 24 seconds. Real time. Okay. Yep. Let me stop. And then number five, I uh, convert it to a WAV file and I run it through the spectrum analyzer. Okay. Do we hear anything? Uh, yes, I slowed down okay. the chirps. Okay. Here's number five then. By how much? A uh, scale of one to 100, I slowed it down to minus 90. Oh, so the Peaky Mountains are at the beginning. Oh, and they're all different. Look at that. 
they're symmetrical. There's a pattern there for sure. Unquestionably. So David was saying, oh, that's a long one. Wow, look at that. Oh, Leo, play. Until you hear the boom. There's a boom coming up. Okay. Okay. Uh, David, you were intuiting that we're looking at language. You said it felt to you like someone was speaking words, phonemes. And when we look at some of these plots, they look like speech laid out in a spectrum analyzer. Yeah. I mean, when you look at what music looks like on a spectrum analyzer, you'll see myriad frequencies that make up music, but you don't see breaks, right? You'll, you'll see a waveform for the entire song, which, you know, nowadays could be three or four minutes or a long song could be seven minutes. So with language, including dolphin chirping, you're going to see spaces between chirps, just like bird chirping. So this really looks structurally like language. And, you know, again, going back to 1901, Collier's Weekly, Tesla claimed in 1899 in his Colorado Springs lab, he established radio contact with aliens. And he described it as well as Guigeli Marconi, the same phenomena sounded like um, Morse code. But But they ruled out Morse code because when they ran it through Morse code, it wasn't Morse code. And again, that was the first thing I asked Jimmy, is this Morse code? And it turns out it isn't. So Morse code, in a way, you have to understand, is language. It's, it's, a, it's a human-made, which is what language is, defined system for dots and dashes that give us um, words. And, and in, in fact, it's a form of encryption. I read this incredible book by an author named, named Simon Singh about encryption. And if you, if you put the encryption hypothesis on the table here, we may need to decrypt the, the messages. Now, if you go to my, because remember, last week I talked about how December 24th and 25th, they sent me back the Royal Cubit. And they not only sent me the most perfect Royal Cubit, which is 20.601 inches that resolved um, Ron Wyatt's discovery of the remains of Mount Ararat, uh, the remains of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat at 515 feet, which is golden ratio in inches, 618 um, um, in the thousand column inches. So what's amazing to me right now is go to my item two and notice that this was today. So I, I mentioned to you today on the phone, Richard, that they're sending me cubits again today, and they've been sending me the square of two royal cubits. And again, that's partially because they're very limited in you, you can't send low numbers through these radios because the speaker on the radio won't put out 40 hertz. Mm. Most speakers, Jonathan knows this stuff, headphones can do 20 hertz, but speakers can't. Most speakers, I mean, unless you're going to spend $100,000, you're not going to hear 20 hertz on so a speaker. So let me, let, me, let, me, let me stop you there. You're saying that the limitation of using the audio transfer method, which you're using, <clears throat> compared mm-hmm. to the digital from the radio directly into the computer 
no speaker involved, all a digital signal, I may be able to pick up and, and record digitally very, very low frequencies that the speaker cannot replicate. Am I right? Yeah, so exactly. So I decrypted a lot of the numbers, and the first number I decrypted, this was last week, was 20.601 inches per royal cubit. Now look at the number on the freeze frame that I captured today, 424.40. Now if I take the square root of that, I'm right, I'm a, a cat's hair away from 20.601 inches, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is the most perfect royal cubit. And this came in today. So again, you see the number on the freeze frame on your video is 424.40, which is one of the numbers my meter captured today, which is January 1st. So this shows, again, repetition of sending me 20.601 inches per wall cubit, which is the most perfect because 20.601 times 280 cubits is the exact, exact finish height of the Great Pyramid, according to Peter (laughs) Nantarier, at 480.69 feet. So there it is again, but this time, instead of doing the square of two wall cubits, this is the square of one royal cubit. <laughs> and so how, good, how much more perfect could you be than that? Okay, if I play this, does it have a soundtrack? If you do, if you play that, there's a soundtrack. Okay, there. so you'll, all right, so let me describe. See, what we wanted to do was democratize this because we're trying to create a worldwide network of people that are brought to this because of some insight, some resonance, some expertise, you know, it's kind of like in Close Encounters where they all show up. Um, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not, not Close Encounters. Um, uh, or, or, or was it? Yeah, it was Close Encounters where they all show up at Devil's Tower. And, right. when, and when the scientist says, why are you here? They said, well, they all had different reasons, but they all felt impelled. I was discussing with Thomas, you know, the last few days. And again, he couldn't be with us tonight because of his illness. Uh, hopefully he'll be back in the saddle by next Saturday, I, I said, I think we're going to put together a network of expertise and people that just feel impelled for whatever reason to be part of this and contribute to this like he came to us. You know, he sent me an email after the show and said, uh, I just happened to find your, your radio show and I've known of your work for, you know, many, many, many years going back to, to Bell. Um, can we talk? And we did. And that's why he's now a, a, another member of the team. There's got to be other folks out there kind of have an intuitive inner drive to be part of this, to contribute something that we can't limb out, you know, left brain scientifically tonight. Um, so let yeah, me you, go ahead. You have to understand that, that we, we can't expect a, a message to come back from a muamua in plain English, right? Remember in the movie Contact, we, we, we get the, they decode the signal and they see Hitler, you know, at the Olympics, you know, and, um, funny you should mention that kind of hold it there because when I started listening, I realized that this is so familiar. And then I realized why just, just, just take a listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> 
this is the synthesized message from the VLA that Jodie Foster and her Jill Tarter persona in the film listens to on headphones there under the 27 antennas south of me here in New Mexico. And then she jumps in her car, races across to the control center because she realizes it's an intelligent signal. And that signal sounds like what we're getting in a weird kind of way. Exactly. And it sure does. And that sound is, those are numerical frequency numbers, like the number you see there. That's the square of the most perfect royal cubit that resolves the Great Pyramid in Noah's Ark, which means that it would be the biblical, the earliest biblical royal cubit. So that means we have a lot to we be are excited about. Okay. We have a lot to be excited about. Uh, we have a lot to be excited about. Oh, I'm sorry, and I'm blowing my break here. See, someone has to be monitoring the time because I am not able to monitor everything simultaneously, particularly when I get into research. I mean, this is just so amazingly cool. I cannot describe how cool this is because none of us expected anything <clears throat> of this complexity when we began. And again, the question is, who are we talking to? Because we're talking to somebody. And they are talking to us. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, January 1, 2022. The new year has finally arrived. And with it, some really extraordinary possibilities. What began as a very far out, very low probability experiment of any kind of success. I mean, we're now drowning in data. We don't have the tools to properly analyze. We need more 
more help. Some of it is coming, coming slowly. We're looking at details. It's obvious we're looking at intelligence signals. But the question is, from whom and what kind of signals? I want to bring uh, Keith into this, Keith Morgan. Because, Keith, you and I have talked about, you know, television transmissions. Is it possible to see scanning some kind of line code, some kind of symmetrical line you know, return system in these signals. So we might be actually be able to see images. It depends on how it's, how it's transmitted. Um, in 1924, when they received the uh, signals that came in the form of dots and dashes, uh, they thought it was Morse code. But uh, they got Charles Francis Jenkins, who was one of the first uh, inventors of the first mechanical television to uh, save these signals onto a six-inch wide film using his radio photoscopic blah, blah, blah device that used the same kind of disc scanning technology he used for his mechanical television. And he's quoted August uh, 28, 1924, uh, quote, quoted saying, uh, we don't think these signals have anything to do with Mars. Quite likely it's heterodyning or interference of radio signals. As for the image of a crudely drawn man's face, it appears at intervals of roughly every half hour. It's a freak, something we can't explain. And you can look that up in the New York Times if you want to. And when you look at the actual film, because there was uh, there is a picture that's floating around, uh, you look you see what looks like a profile of a face showing up. And if it's repeating at intervals of every half hour, it's uh, it's an artificial con uh, transmission and it's not uh, heterodyning or interference of radio sickness because that's completely random. And I get people who think they know television saying, well, you need to know the person's terminal height and width, and you don't. Because Tesla suggested that we transmit an image of a face in the space uh, back in his day, and they shot him down. And he wouldn't have suggested it if it wasn't possible. If I wanted to transmit an image to uh, somebody and I didn't know what their terminal height and width was, I could transmit a million pictures. Each one would have a resolution based on its position in the transmission, one by one, two by two, three by three, all the way up to one million by one million. And today's high-resolution televisions are in the 1024 by 768 resolution. And... If I was transmitting to somebody who was using 1024 by 768, um, they would actually, that 1024 by 768 would actually, uh, 10 by, uh, yeah, it would actually be the first image when the pixel would lock in the left-hand corner right across the screen, and then it would continue to write down your image until you got to the bottom of the screen. And then it would start to scroll up, continuing finishing the uh, 10, 1024 by 768 uh, pictures. And then once it's completed that, then it would be garbage for the next half hour, hour, whatever amount of time it took for it to drift back in position. Mm. And then it would repeat at the same interval again and again and again based on the rate that it's out of sync with you're scanning that you're doing. So wait, wait, does that explain why Jenkins got a face, an image, some kind of a, of a structured diagram, graphic, whatever, roughly every half hour? Yep, because it kept drifting back into ah. sync at that interval. 
and there's probably more data in that picture. There may be higher resolution images or there may be lower resolution images, but you're going to probably find if you could take those signals and uh, kind of shift them and run them again and again and, and until one of the other resolutions shows up, you'll probably find that there's other images into that one signal. And uh, you have to do a little bit of work and run some calculations to make the, the computer actually try to duplicate these these signals over and over again by shifting them pixel by pixel by pixel until you get another image that shows up. And if there's a higher resolution image in there, it would definitely show up and give us more detail. You mean in our transmissions, in our whatever we're, we're receiving? Not just in our transmissions, but also in um, Charles Francis Jenkins. Yeah, uh, but do we have the original? He didn't have recording technology. It, it's basically there was a paper you know, photo 30 feet long. Do you know where that is? I don't. No. I have one frame which I will dig out and post next week in Radio with Pictures. I found it in the Yale Library Archive to Friedman, who was the master code decoder of the U.S. Army at the time. I've got one frame, and when I show you what it looks like and analogs to it that are much more recent in space history, it's going to blow your socks off because it's recognizable yeah if we don't if we don't have a longer strip that has that image plus extra nope we got we, one we frame not, yeah we may not be able to pull out the other but images. we do have our current transmission so what kind of software what kind of computer power what kind of expertise do we need to see if there is literal scanning like you know jody um you know jody foster's character looked at in uh in, uh, in in contact well we just need to take those signals and actually run them through maybe uh some kind of scanning technique where you can actually place the pulses onto a screen and just let it run down the screen continuously until something locks into place can we, can we tell if it's television from looking at John's waveforms? No. Hmm. I, I seriously doubt if they've got sync and, and horizontal and vertical sync and burst and other stuff embedded in it. Um, I think it, the simplest thing is to be able to send the image as like dots and dashes, which would be ones and zeros, and it would assemble itself. And the good thing about doing that is that it doesn't matter whether you're scanning left to right, right to left, top to bottom, um, bottom to top. The picture is either going to be reversed, mirror image, it's going to be upside down, but you will get an image. So it doesn't matter how the person's scanning unless they're scanning diagonally in some kind of weird fashion, which I seriously doubt um, that would leave an what we would still get a repeat of some kind of weird image that would repeat at the same interval. Hmm. So sounds uh, to me like you need to have a conversation with Thomas when he's back on his feet, because I think he has some of the technology necessary to do that. But if he doesn't, we need more people to show up, raise their hands, volunteer to help us crack this because 
What if it was some kind of television? And what if it's at a much higher rate because it's like a burst transmission between dimensions? Can I, I ask well, well, something, Richard? <laughs> yeah, by all means. <laughs> we all just it's wonderful. <laughs> Every, everybody, all right, all right. John, John, John first, John first, uh, George okay, second, wanna... and then David. I just want to clarify, you asked me before about um, like item number three, the, the spectrum uh, analyzer. Right. You asked me what the why was. I, I thought you were asking me what it represents as far as a pattern. But, no, you were just asking me what the uh, What's on the, the graph? Is. That's the amplitude. Oh, Okay. That's amplitude. And, and I, what, I now know from running the video that it, it scan it runs from bottom left to upper left. And so the, the, the three symmetrical peaks that you freeze framed, mm-hmm. that's the first of the transmissions we're hearing. And they're elegantly symmetric. Mm. And what I want to do this, this next week is have some comparison uh, because the, the signals from December 24th, at first I thought it was not as interesting, and then I realized, oh, my God, this is even more interesting. Oh, is your computer December still 4th. chomping away? Your, your, yes. your, your steam-powered yeah, calliope? Tell everybody <laughs> what you're trying to do. Well, right now I'm rendering uh, December 24th. Uh, you recorded, or David or Jimmy, I'm not sure. No, I recorded Go ahead. Oh, Richard, it was you. Okay, it was an hour of digitally recorded tra- data during and after uh, Jimmy's first transmission at noon on uh, December 24th for about an hour. And I believe, yeah. David, am I correct that he transmitted for half an hour? Yeah, and then I recorded it in audio, which I need to get you, Jonathan, because I, I have them loaded onto a Google Drive. Right. But mine are only about 10 minutes each, 20 or 10 minutes. Okay. Well, I took um, my other items, items six through nine, are just uh, a few samples from that hour. And so that you can see the waveforms here that are anybody that works with voice or music, they are very interesting and you know, I zoomed in on them, so like number seven and number eight, you can see the zoom, that's the uh, amplitude waveform. And then from there, I can magnify and zoom in either even further to each segment. You can't go any further down into the signal. You see every segment that makes up that waveform. So right. what I want to do, I, there's a part of that hour-long signal. It's right in the middle. It's at the... 30-minute mark. Just when and Jimmy it, was ending his transmission. That's, oh the, that's the key part, see? Is it? Oh, man. Yes, it's, yes. Uh, see, you have to understand that we have to look at the possibility that whatever's sending us back data is so sophisticated. Let's say there's three or four of us that have radios. It's sending me royal qubits because I understand them. <laughs> it's sending somebody else something else. It's sending somebody else something else. We haven't cross-checked our data, and one of the things we need to do in the future is make sure we're all recording chirps simultaneously in real time. Yeah, and Thomas has a very elegant, simple means of coordinating all our time bases so we're all on the same clock. 
let me let me go to Georgia, who is very oh, wait, polite. I've got to do one quick point. Okay. It's very important. So note that on December 24th and 25th, I was given the perfect 20.601 inch royal cubit. Now, that uh, the square of two royal cubits. Now I've been given the square of one royal cubit days later. This demonstrates repetition, and that's part of what um, um, Keith is talking about. If you were broadcasting, just like in the movie Contact, a signal meant for all humanity to, to receive, you would broadcast the same signal for a duration of hours, minutes, or days until they got it. And so the fact that days later, because it's January 1st, I'm getting... The seven tetrahedral days. One week later, seven symmetry seven. spins of a because tetrahedron. Look at number. I just took... Okay, go in your calculator. I put 20.601 inches squared. It comes to 424... Point four zero. Now look at my item two, is four two four point four zero, but then there's a one two zero one in the in the um, thousandths of an inch, the ten thousandths of an inch column. Now my meter doesn't have that resolution, so I'm absolutely certain the the meter the number you're looking at four two four point four zero. Take the square root of that. That's twenty point six zero one inches, which is the perfect royal cubit. That it cannot be an accident because they sent me the perfect royal cubit on December, on Christmas. Why? That just may be the surface layer to give us an indication of who's sending us this data. And like Keith is saying and Jonathan is saying, there's more data underneath that in the same transmission. Now, here's, the, here's something we need to do because the audio portion, and I have pure wave files, Jonathan. I, I compress them to MP3 to make it easier to send people. But I can put the pure wave file in, in in a folder for you, so I'm not giving you MP3s. And but I don't think the audio file alone. I think we need to do this live, where we're receiving through a TV antenna into one of those old tube type TVs and seeing what we get so can you can you um what um, channel would we listen to on a you listen to the receiving frequency 144.1 megahertz can it can we get an old tv tuned to that and see what comes in keith mr television well we could but what we're going to be looking at is it depends on the the scanning rate at which which the um, the CRT is scanning, and if it's at 50 hertz or 60 hertz, um, that may not come out exactly the way we want it to. So we um, need a computer ability to vary the scan and to look for the frequency they're sending as opposed to our standard. Yeah. But is it possible, Keith, to get an old TV, black and white Sony or, or color Trinitron, tuned to 144.1 megahertz receiving and and see what shows up on the screen in a response? Maybe nothing. Maybe, maybe there's going to be – maybe they're sending us pictures simultaneously, and it wouldn't even be that difficult. Yeah. And you mean you, – you, you, hang on, hang on. You mean pictures on our standards? So we don't have to do any interpolating or coding or whatever because they know exactly, they know they how know. limited we are. 
But again, nobody transmits TV at 144.1 megahertz anymore. No, we're we're not doing that what's, anymore. What's the closest VHF station to that, Keith? Do you remember? No. 144.1 meg? Or 432 meg, right? Like we, that's really long, you know, those are long waves compared to what we use today. Even more so, we want to play this underwater I love that idea because then you have you you have time dilation there. You have you're slowing. We're back into into dolphin territory. Okay, so um, you're back into dolphin territory. Hang on, guys. Hang on. We have to be civil here, Georgia. You're very polite. You we need a dolphin. <laughs> you just have to break in. Somebody out there. We need a dolphin uh, and a dolphin trainer. Seriously, we want to play the chirps to a dolphin at different oh speeds. Oh my gosh! Wouldn't and that see be what the dolphin interprets it as. Let's contact SeaWorld and see if they'd be willing to work with us. Ron, you're in their vicinity. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine asking SeaWorld? Not on speaking terms. <laughs> I was going. I was going to. No, I was going to. I was going to say something else. Uh, all you engineers over there, uh, has there ever been? And the the answer to this question is yes. But has there ever been a um, receiver or a transceiver? for that frequency that had tubes. I believe so, yes. It goes back far enough, you know, far before transistors. So uh, there's your tuning section. As far as the rest of the equipment uh, connected to an old TV, rest of it's an amplifier. You just, you could put together an analog TV that would work. Up, we lost him. Georgia, this is your break. Come on. Well, you already uh, sort of addressed a question that I had, which is, of all of you that are listening and recording this data, are you all getting the same thing at the same time? We don't know. And if not, then there is an element of consciousness involved. And I am reminded of the ancient story of the grail appearing through court and giving to each night that which was relevant to them. That's beautifully said because that's what we were just talking about. What if they're a, what if they're sending everybody's radios simultaneously totally different numbers? Yeah, that's a question that needs to be answered. Yeah, well, we, we, can, we, can, we can easily find out, but as, as Thomas said, because for some infernal reason, I asked Keith earlier when we were setting up recording here, the recorder doesn't tap into the master clock in the computer. It simply starts and it gives you a duration in hours, minutes, and seconds, but it doesn't time it to the Internet or to the time-based corrector in the computer, whatever. So there's a very hard problem of synchronizing recordings that David would do, that I would do, that Keith would do, that John would do. And, and Thomas had an idea this afternoon for doing this in a kind of a stone knives and bearskins fashion, which is that we each look at a clock and we literally put a tone on our tape at a specific time. And that way we can synchronize each of the separate recordings, regardless of whether they're audio or digital to basically a master clock. And we'll be with accurate probably within a second because it's going to be manual. And Keith, there's got to be another way to do this computer to computer. There's got to be. Could you all coordinate over something like Skype or Zoom? Oh, of course. Yeah, but that's buffered. 
there there are times when you, it's not in sync. It's not real time. For this, it seems like the clocks in the computers um, should be. Um, but there's no way to get it, that onto the tape that I've been making. And I asked Keith, "How do we do this?" He said, "I don't think it's possible." Keith, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. You're talking about lining up wave peaks perfectly. That's you what do I'd like what to do. What they do in Hollywood, you do the slate, you do the clap, and yeah. then you just line up everybody. Yeah, it's basically clap. a clap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At a particular time on each you do recording. The slate. Yeah, on everybody's recording, you do your slate. Then in your editing bay, you line up your slates, and you know one one editor gets all the tracks. Line up your spike on your slate, and then everything's in sync. <clears throat> so if we're doing it audio, that's easy. If we're yeah. doing it digitally, I don't know how I would input a a tone or a signal at a particular time. Let's say you know uh, eleven a.m. zero zero zero, that kind of thing. You know, we need a TV that has an antenna that's tuned to our receiver. Either that or we go higher. Here's another thing I need to put out there, everybody, is we need two or three more people with antennas to duplicate this. Because scientifically speaking, we may find out that we don't even need a big antenna. We may get the response through these little radios without an antenna. But we need to duplicate this with another antenna other than Jimmy's. That's just pure science. You can't just do this on one antenna. Okay, so if there are hams out there, and I know there are that listen, you need to contact us and you need to you know, agree to let us borrow your system. We'll give you the code. We'll give you what to transmit. And we'll do it in a way that we can record simultaneously at different parts of the country or even the world the reception that we get and that will yeah, be we need all- a pointable antenna a system that can rotate not in a rect monopole or or yeah any that. any, any high end ham you know if art was still with us he had a rig like that and so i know we're listened to by hams uh all you have to do is contact us and see if you want to participate in something that i guarantee you has never been done before certainly with this kind of response yeah, I remember driving by Art Bell's house in Nevada and seeing his massive antenna mm-hmm. in Pahrump, Nevada, pulling up to his house at 2 or 3 in the morning, just happened to be driving. Did you there. walk up and knock on the door? No, no. Oh, I mean, okay. I, I should have, you know, but I, I just – I was with my wife, and we were in the Death Valley, going through Death Valley, and you go through Pahrump. And, I, you know, I looked up his address, found his house, and there it was. I mean, he broadcast right out of his house with this massive – Antenna, and that's what Art Bell was. He was a ham radio operator. He was, that's how we started out. And then next thing you know, the whole world was listening to him. So, so we, so we need some dedicated hams, and it would be nice if we had more than one because we need to democratize this. This is a chance to get it on the ground floor of something so extraordinary. Uh, we've got about four minutes to the top of the hour. Uh, yeah, one, one, I would like to go to also put this out that instead of 144.1 megahertz i like to go to 1.441 gigahertz because you're right above the hydrogen line there in fact we should listen yeah, but there I, are no I, amateurs that have that gear that's up in no, the what's we called might be able to find somebody that has but that that's gear. called the s-band frequencies and that's government you know, that's that's the, the frequency range. Well, we need somebody in government then who... Oh, they're not going to loan us there. Are you kidding? 
This has to be civilian. And that's why the ham. See, I'm almost of the opinion, and I want to come back to uh, Georgia, that it almost doesn't matter how we transmit. It's something that Thomas and I talked about. And David, you and I talked about it. It's about the intention to send a message. Mm -hmm. Well, that means there's consciousness there. And exactly. exactly. I think there is consciousness there. I've done some own tests, my own tests with my radios, which I won't talk about yet. But I can tell you that according to the test I've done, there is. Now, another thing, here's a sample I have of a fast radio burst I'm going to send you, Keith. And, and just play this on the air because this is a traditional fast radio burst, which is, which is a new phenomenon that's been in the news where we're getting these FRBs from different, you know, um, constellation groups. And there is a similarity. I got to say there's some kind of similarity happening with the FRB sounds. Well, first of all, they're called fast radio bursts. Yeah. Because they're compressed into a very short period of time. But I don't know whether anybody in the professional astronomy world has thought to slow them down and to look at individual waveforms. So when we come back, we will play one of those. Uh, we're literally at the uh, uh, top of the hour, so we, I don't want to miss another break. People get so upset when I miss these hard breaks. So let's all pause. Um, I just want to tell everybody that we're on the edge of something so amazing. I mean, again, I didn't really know where we hear anything, and we're now drowning in data. We have it in different forms, and we're going to have a lot more. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, what I'll call the Maria Project. And for those of you who were not here last, uh, last week, last Saturday, we'll remind everyone what the Maria Project is and why it is super cool. Anyway, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side is midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
welcome back, everyone. Sunday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, first and second new day of the new year of 2022. So it's one, two, two, zero, two, two. For those of you who are uh, kind of entrained in the numbers. Okay, I want to do several things. Ron, you're our resident generalist. You've not been actively involved in the experiments, uh, either in terms of developing the transmission or the reception. You have a kind of a distance and objectivity, which I think is very valuable. Give us your thoughts of where are we tonight? Well, I think you're getting to the point where you're collecting solid evidence. You know, it's, it's, it's always rough starting off anything. Uh, in terms of looking in a new direction, because you've got to uh, you've got to build a context for everybody to appreciate it. And I probably only get 19 and a half seconds, so if I stop in the middle of the sentence, <laughs> you know, it, I, I don't know what's uh, why it's doing that again, Keith. Uh, but um, anyway, the yeah, no, it sounds like you're it sounds like you're getting to the point where you can record this. I have to say, there's one thing that I noticed listening to it on my phone, like I do the. Uh, uh, there is a patterning under there, and I don't hear speech so much as something very similar to your opening theme music. You know, the woo-woo-woo. You mean the thermiophon. Exactly. Uh, now, you, I know how to pronounce that, but you just made it impossible. Uh, the theremin. 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 Sorry, yes. Yeah, I, all I had to do was think of Jimmy Page, and he banished the demons. Uh, he was obsessed with it for a couple of years. Finally, thankfully, he got over it. But uh, all the musicians are because of the way they work. You know what that is, right? It's that. Well, it's uh, an inductance it's, tube that has resonant frequencies, and it changes as you t- take your hand away or move it up and down, and you can do inter. Right, you don't have to actually touch. Yeah, yeah, you don't have to actually touch it. And you can get pretty sophisticated. Uh, there's actually a keyboard, or a keyboard, uh, s- sort of an ocarina instrument from uh, India that makes a very similar set of sounds. That uses um, now that's a, you could do a whole show on those things, and they're a very common instrument there. You'll hear them in the in Bollywood. Anyway, uh, I think that it's maybe doing that. Because you're still possibly in a handshake period if you. Oh, we lost him. Isn't that a weird? Okay. That's so weird. Richard, if if I can mention too, one of the things I've done was to add tones. To I know you didn't want to add anything, but I figured adding tones and semitones just gives us. You know, I did it at a low level first, just one octave worth, but you could add numerous octaves. Um, but yeah, it, it just gives it a little bit of, it gives it a tonal quality and it's, I don't know if it's more musical or voice, but it, you hear, instead of just clicks, you're, you hear, well, the tones, every peak has a tone, so you get this sound. Okay, and it sounds- you sent us during the break a, a Skype message that your render of my digital version or portion of my digital recording of the Christmas Eve broadcast uh, finally had finished after, wait for it, folks, 33 tetrahedral hours. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of consciousness going on. um, So can you play any of that? 
Um, I could play it, but it's it's more. I, I could. But you want to? It's something you'd like to see too. It's it's uh, a spectrum analyze uh, of. Let's see. Okay, one minute. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, obviously we'd like to hear it. I could do. Yeah. Yeah, and and then that. we'll just upload it for next week. Yeah, hey, and guys, thing, I. Oh, there you are, Ron. I just had a while. Ron has popped back I, from hyperspace. See, Ron goes home yes. to Alpha Centauri regularly, yeah. and you know he just doesn't give anybody any warning. Go ahead, Ron. Yes, the, yes, the original home world of uh, Captain Kirk. People forgot that, and they, originally he was said to have been born on Alpha Centauri. Hmm, I didn't yeah. know that. But yeah, they moved him to the Midwest because to of Iowa. The movie. Yes, Iowa. There you go. Uh, I love that opening scene. Uh, <laughs> no, anyway, the uh, now. See what you did again. Uh, <laughs> I'm having fun listening to this. Uh, I lo- I completely lost train of thought because of the Alpha Centauri thing. What were you saying? What were you asking? I I wanted you to resume what you were talking about before you left. So in ceremony. Oh, oh, about the music. Yeah. yeah well, he was just. He, yeah, he was just talking about music. No, I, I that seems perfectly reasonable to me that uh, if someone or something even an AI, uh, the signal and sends back the same thing. I mean, that's the same logic that Carl Sagan had and anybody else connected with contact, but why not? If you're trying to say, okay, we're here, what's up? Now, if you wanted to take it a step farther, uh, you might already know who this is and said, oh, look at one of those, uh, one of those creatures contacted us. Um, Whoops. Somebody really doesn't like Ron. <laughs> So, Georgia, um, apparently, if we're dealing with consciousness, and we won't know that until we do the simultaneous comparing messages, comparing notes, um, we could do something that would kind of invoke, a la a civilization or a planet, um, guidance, help, uh, inspiration, wisdom. Talk about that in terms of the appeal uh, to the soul of the nation that you were going to talk about. Did we lose Georgia? This is not a good night for communications. We're talking communications, and we're having problems with communication. No, she's just muted. Ah, Georgia, can you unmute? I don't hear her unmuting. Okay. Okay. And well, in in the interim, um, David, let's let's go back to reiterating, because tonight you got something really bizarre which is recurrence of qubits, which, of course, you decoded seven days ago after the Christmas Eve transmission, um, which gave you all different kinds of qubits. I think that seven-day repetition could be a very important part of the message, the meta-message. Well, to me, it identifies who's communicating back to us. I mean, it's either... Like if if you if you go in the Bible and you see in the book of Ezekiel, for example, an angel comes upon the prophet Ezekiel holding a six cubit staff, and of course a staff is a monopole. If we go to the book of Numbers and Moses, you know God tells Moses to put a coiled brass, which is copper and tin serpent, on a pole, which is his, which is basically the first radio that Tesla demonstrated at the Chicago World's Fair, which is just a coil, 
an inductive radio system where you transmit from one coil to another. So the fact that we see biblical and Egyptian consistency of cubits, in fact, not only did I get the most perfect royal cubit, which is 20.601 twice, I got I got the square of the perfect royal cubit, and I got the square of two perfect royal cubits. And again, two royal cubits was was more common as an actual measurement than one royal cubit in actual building of structures. See, the, the God of the prophets has the prophets build things from Noah's Ark to the Ark of the Covenant to the temples, to the Holy of Holies, to the holy place. Everything had to be measured perfectly using a perfect cubit. And the reason for that is is, is frequency. Because the way we generate frequencies with crystals is we will cut a crystal, a piece of quartz crystal, to a certain dimension to determine the, the crystal oscillator frequencies that that piece of quartz will generate. So that's how we generate radio frequencies. We use quartz and we cut it in, into a certain size and dimension to produce frequencies. So my theory is that temples are actually frequency tuners. So a pyramid is a slope tuner, which is a really brilliant form of, of, of a type of crystal oscillator because it's made out of conductive and semiconductive materials. So when we're getting these numbers, we're getting the, the perfect units with which everything is built to perfection. The pyramid is built to flawless perfection. It was not built by amateurs. It wasn't built by carpenters who are accurate to a half an inch. They were accurate to over 10 thousandths of an inch. So what's amazing is I just, you know, in the last few minutes decided to take the 20.601 inch as, as an antenna, as the perfect roll cubit as an antenna, which is, a, again, the smaller the antenna, the higher the frequency. Right, And the, the frequency of 20.601 starts, it's really amazing what this number is, it's 143.2 million. So there's your 432 again, <laughs> 1432, 143.2.31550 million hertz. So that means it's 1.432 megahertz. And, and again, we're seeing that number again, the 432. So why... With the perfect royal cubit as a monopole antenna, produce 1.432. Um, again, why would it produce that number? It's actually 143.2 megahertz, so it's one um, one four three two. So that is phenomenal to me. It's it's utterly phenomenal. It shows who is whom is sending us these messages. Could be none other than the master architect. Because there's nobody else, even the Egyptians themselves, and I put this in our items last week, that when the archaeologists found 14 rulers, they ranged between 20.6 and 20.83 inches per cubit, which means the Egyptians were trying to understand what the perfect cubit was. They never figured it out. <laughs> they were close, but they had a huge range, right? One you know, 20.6 um, to 20.83 means, imagine if you sent um, 12 workers to go build a pyramid and you gave each one of them a different ruler, <laughs> you would have one heck of a mess in the end. Nothing right. would fit. Right. So 
you you have to understand that thing is built to perfection, absolute perfection, greater than the ten thousandths of an inch column, and that's something that archaeologists could not accept. They could not accept a building that is made to a twenty point six zero one inch cubit because the one is in the hundredth of an inch column, right? Twenty point six zero one. Yeah, and supposedly built by a bunch of primitives. Barely uh, into, into the age of metals, bronze, that kind of thing. Right. So, so that's who's sending us the messages back because they're sending us these messages, the numerical values of the cubits. Now, they did send me a bunch of other cubits which line up with Islamic cubits, which line up with with Sumerian cubits. There's a lot of cubits out there, but you, the thing about theories and having other cubits is it has to resolve an ancient structure to perfection or it isn't real. So what I thought was if, if Noah's Ark is resolved perfectly to the 20.601 inch royal cubit, that would be the cubit that the God of the prophets used. Now, when you, when you whoever, whoever that was. Well, wait, again, whoever that was, but you have to understand, like, if... Remember, there is a model out there that God is an ET. ET is, you know, member Stargate SG-1 and all that. So we need to factor that into our larger thinking about who we're talking to. Well, there's no question if you look to. at Ezekiel that, that God is flying a giant spaceship and whoever God is. Which gets me flying. to Star Trek V. Remember when Kirk asks this being beyond the rim of the galaxy... Why does God need a starship? Very, very, exactly. It and gets, he says, you doubt me? <laughs> <laughs> yes. By the way, I, I, I have a bit of bad news, but I want to bring the audience up to date. The reason we couldn't reach Georgia is she's had to leave. There's been a bit of a family emergency she has to deal with. It's nothing serious, but she has to tend to it. So we will have her back next week because uh, I'm sure things will straighten out by then. I just didn't want to leave a huge hole of people wondering, where did Georgia go? Georgia's fine. We just had to goodnight her so she can deal with this. All right. God bless her and her family. So the the perfection we're seeing is too perfect. We're not at 97%. We we are at the most perfect royal cubit that resolves the Great Pyramid. Come on. It's not even 99 plus. It's perfect because 20.601 times 280 cubits is the exact, exact finish height of the Great Pyramid. And now we see 20.601 as a monopole produces 143.2 megahertz. So that's 1432. So then you got to see, this is what's really interesting to me as studying frequencies for the last 20 years and doing calculations myself on every temple that I can get perfect measurements to and even doing the calculations on the measurement of the staff of Aaron and Moses because we know in the Bible it lay in the Ark of the Covenant it's two and a half cubits so therefore the staff is two and a half cubits but which cubit right and again once you understand what a monopole is and how it interfaces with human consciousness and you see the study I did on the Washington Monument that that high 432 octave tuner was planted in the ground in the upper eastern Atlantic as a consequence of George Washington's vision of creating the new free world. And all of a sudden, 
all these massive scientific discoveries are born. Well, it's, it's the whole Francis Bacon thing of the new Atlantis. Right. Exactly what it is. I, I'm glad you brought up Francis Bacon because that means that beings, beings like this was Luc Montagne who won, who cooperatively won a Nobel Prize for the co-discovery of the of the supposed AIDS virus. I'll call it supposed AIDS virus. But nevertheless, he did alternate studies on human DNA and frequency. It got him into a lot of trouble because he was fringing with the New Age world. And he found that human DNA, which is like a little coil, right, which means it's like an inductor. It's a spiral. It's a vortex. It's a vortex. And it received, he found it could receive very low frequencies and very high frequencies as an inductor. And he noted around 7 hertz. And, of course, the, the Tesla Schumann Which is fundamental. near the Schumann resonance right. of the right. Earth, of the planet. Which means we are frequency transmitter receivers. Now, what is it about certain frequencies that cause magic to happen? And the next frequency right next door may actually cause cancer or something like that, right? Hmm. It's actually not electromagnetism, EMS, that causes cancer. It depends what frequency it is, right? Because the whole universe is EMF. The Earth is EMF. The sun is EMF. The stars are EMF. Oh, we've been bathed in radio waves from, you know, from the beginning. From the beginning. And we're here, so. You can't tell people that, that... that EMF, all EMF is bad. In fact, you'd be dead if it wasn't for naturally harmonic EMFs. So the question is, why is it that we implanted a 432 octave tuner in Washington that suddenly the, the, the creative genius of the world exploded within a certain radius of the monument? Now, what does it mean that they sent us back a, 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 a measurement for a monopole that's effectively one-tenth of the height of the monument, it takes us to a higher 432. Instead of 432, it takes us to 4,320. How, high, the, how high can these uh, Baogen, I think it's the, the, the brand name, how high can they be tuned? Baofeng. Well, the Baofeng has Baofeng, Baofeng. Thank two you. bands. It has two bands that one of them the 432 is just underneath the limit of the limit is 500 it's five something 500 and something megahertz so there, there, you can't go to a gigahertz is what i'm saying you're oh, not okay. going to get there you're, you're way under a gigahertz and and so we're still we're operating way underneath where everybody else is operating right now because the internet wi-fi everything is gigahertz everything is billion hertz bandwidth in fact we're higher than the hydrogen line, which is 1.420 gigs. That's your that's your hydrogen line. You mean we're lower then? No, no, no. We're the Baofeng is lower, but I mean civilization is higher than that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hey, hey guys. Yes. Oh, you're back. I'm. Oh yeah, I've been, yeah I've been back. And How is Proxima? Yeah. Oh, it's oh it's doing fine. You know, a little family <laughs> squabble, but um, the um, yeah we. Uh, or we're destroying one of the one of the lesser moons, and it just anyway. Uh, the uh, problem here is resonance. You're not thinking about harmonics. 
I wanted to say this in the measurement part. That's when I got cut off because the, uh, the business with the different sized cubits, there is a reason there. It's because it's always based on proportions of the human body. And whoever the head architect was of a particular Actually, it's that's just some that's the language. I don't symbols. think that's true. And when Ron comes back, true. I will argue with him because you can't have a standard based on the arbitrary arm length of some dumb ruler or some dumb master no. architect. Come that's on, that's a language of symbols. It's just a yeah. symbolic language. Yeah, it's exactly. like like like, like like the inch is not the the space on the bicycle first. bell. There you are. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, it's proportional. No, it's not. So Ron, it's not. David, tell him why what we were talking no, wait, about. Wait, it's no, it's multiple things because there is a proportionality to it in the sense of the overall size because there are two different types of rule rulers. You could get this from Georgia too, for, uh, that the ancient Egyptians used, and there are ones that are uh, sequential or you know metric, not metric, metric, but you know they follow a metric, and they can be any size but you're still going to get the same, you know, subdivisions on them. Uh, and there are ones that were for. Wow. We lost him again. See, it's the language of symbols. It's like God telling Moses to put a fiery brass serpent on a pole. That's uh, You wouldn't walk around with a snake on a pole. It's going to bite your arm. No, the snake <laughs> is symbolic of a wavelength, the frequency of the, coil, of the pole is, is of, of, of an antenna. Yeah, I mean, Look, let, 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 us, let us invert this. The, the, the 20.06, if that is a resonant fundamental... Oh, no, it's 20.601. It's 601. 20.601. 20.601. If that is a fundamental length, frequency, standard, whatever, is it not possible if we're dealing with extraterrestrials who are family who have tinkered in the nursery that Homo sapiens has been designed to that geometric dimension deliberately, and then the variances are because we're looking at the equation backwards. It's not that the the, standard... The variances are... See, what happened is the Jews did not want to accept the Egyptian cubit. They they wanted to define themselves apart from them because of the, the discrepancies. But yet... There was only one cubit in existence at the time of Moses. There wasn't – the Jews did not have their own cubit at the time of Moses. So when God told Moses to make the ark two and a half cubits by one and a half by one and a half, and God told Moses to make – you know, I mean, at the time of Solomon – actually, at the time of Moses, the holy of holies was ten by ten by ten. And again, it would be royal cubits if you read Ezekiel because Ezekiel says God uses a cubit plus a hand, which again is the symbol. Now I happen to know a gentleman who visited me last summer, who's from who's from Africa, and his elbow to fingertip with a Leica laser was twenty point six oh one inches. <laughs> and but you're not going to find another guy like no, that. No, you, you can't another. have a standard based on a variable human, yeah. you know, body part. Come on. Because you'll send your twenty workers to go work and make something. They're all going to have different rulers, and your your building's going to no, be lobbed. No, it's, it's, it's nuts. It's nuts. It'll drive you crazy. It's a language of symbols. So when God told Moses to put a you know, fiery brass serpent on a pole, first fiery means melt the metal so you can bend it, 
and then wrap it around like a coil around the pole, and now you have an inductor. You have a transmitter receiver. Now, that's I remember making my first radio in Berkeley, California as a kid when my dad was at the university, and I got the toilet paper roll, and you wrap the copper wire around it, and you get a crystal <laughs> diode and a little earbud, and you're listening to the radio. So that's what God of Moses told him to do, make a radio. <laughs> so that's pretty significant. So I started studying all the, the staff lengths. You'll notice in ancient Egypt, on all the iconography and all the temples, the goddess Hathor, Isis, Osiris, you know, all of them have their staff. And you, if, you, if you do the math like I did, you can do a simple ratio calculation. You can tell that the, all the masters are using the same, the same measurement for a staff as a monopole antenna as two and a half royal cubits. And there's a reason for that because this is in – it's called – in the Bible, it's Mark 6, 8. And actually, Mark 6, 1 through 8, which is, again, the golden ratio, 6, 1, 8, tells the story where Jesus is assembling his disciples, who are actually his brothers and sisters. And before he sends them out to go heal, he's telling them that he did all the miracles with the staff. He's saying, you have to have your staff with you when, when you disperse, because why? It's going to attune you to this healing frequency, this miracle frequency, hmm. when you walk around with it. You see, Moses trained with his staff for over 40 years before he could produce miracles with it. Because when you're holding a rod with a coil at the perfect length, your nervous system is going to start to vibrate at that frequency. And at that frequency, you are your own radio receiver to receive a universal impetus at that frequency. And that's why you'll see them. All the ancient Egyptians had their staff. Why did Jesus say in Mark 6, 1 through 8, which is golden ratio, you had to have your staff? He said, no money in your purse, just your staff, because that's your frequency tuner. So what we're doing now with this little Baofeng radio, that, that little antenna sticking out of the top of it, like, that's, your, that's what's tuning you to the frequencies that are coming in, right? It's, if you unscrew the antenna, all the chirping stops. So your spine, it happens to also be, this is really interesting. Okay, we are, we are, we are we're literally 30 seconds away from the bottom of the hour. When we come back, I, what I want to do is I want to talk about some really bizarre things that happened this evening with these little Baofeng radios. And David and I had a conversation and then other weird things happen, and we're going to play the uh, fast radio burst so you can hear what radio astronomers are all uh, uh, gaga now, you know, new radio astronomy data coming in from some source. They, of course, think it's natural, some high-energy, super-condensed, you know, uh, white dwarfs, black holes, neutron stars, whipping plasma into resonant frequencies, but maybe not. Because I don't know anybody in the radio astronomical community who has slowed down the fast radio bursts. John, that sounds to me like it might be a project you would want to take a look at. And I'll bring it up to Thomas, but maybe there's encoding in the FRBs and the mainstream has completely missed it. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we come back, the very weird stories about who we might 
be talking to. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. In your mind you have capacities, you know To telepath messages through the vast unknown Please close your eyes and concentrate With every thought you think Upon the recitation we're about to Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, Sunday morning, here in the Land of Enchantment. My guests this morning are David and John and Keith, and uh, we lost Georgia because she had to deal with a family emergency. And uh, we're kind of discussing how we, how we get from the messages that we've received to a next-level understanding so we can transmit ourselves better messages and get better answers. And what I want to do is I want to uh, now play, um, for the benefit of our audience, I, I want to play this uh, fast radio burst uh, that David has sent me so you can hear what the mainstream radio astronomy community thinks as normal mainstream uh, astrophysical sources. So let me get it set up here. And let's hear if we can hear something. Takes a moment to load. The little spiral is spiraling. 
Okay, this is not... Thank you for coming in such short Okay, time. this is a commercial. All right, we're going to skip that. Okay, this is... Um, it says sonification of dynamic radio base. Okay, David, what does that sound like to you? It sounds similar to what we're hearing, but it's much softer. I'd actually like to run that through my frequency meter. I don't have it here with me. Um, I have to do that in the lab. I just noticed something amazing here is, again, when I take the 20.601-inch royal cubit as a monopole, it produces 143.231550 megahertz but when i look at the end of my decimal it ends in 4321 so it starts with 1432 and it ends with 4321 so this is masterful what this means i've never even <laughs> looked at this before <laughs> again this came in from Amuamua. this this is part of the answer so who's sending us the message and is it faster than white. I'll, I'll tell you something really phenomenal. <clears throat> I did this in Sedona. I went on this night vision goggle tour of UFOs and I'm, wear, I'm wearing these phenomenal night vision goggles. I'm walking next to my wife in the dark and I look at her chest with the night vision and I tore the goggles off my head. It almost blinded me how much light is coming off the human heart. Now, the infrared light that leaves your heart travels at the speed of light. So the longer you've been on this planet, your physical light, my light has is over 60 light years away because I'm over 60 years old. And that means that what we know about quantum entanglement, all of my photons are all quantum entangled, with, which means that they're spread out holographically in all different directions, as is yours and yours and yours, as is all 8 billion people on the planet which means your light is part of your consciousness. And we know that that light communicates with itself faster than light. So we as receivers have the capacity to receive anywhere physical faster than light function, depending on how long you've been on this planet. Your, I mean, my light has passed um, Vega, for example, because you know and and the, and the older we are our light is really way out there we're actually part of that bubble field of light because it it's going out in all different directions and that's remarkable because scientists know this now they they verified that quantum entangled photons which all of your photons are they all communicate with each other faster than light they've actually tested this in the lab so that may partly explain when you pick up one of these radios, whatever's happening with it. When Moses picked up his staff, when Jesus and the apostles picked up their staffs, because we know from Mark 6, 1 through 8, which is golden ratio, that they had their staffs because he told them to. That means there was a purpose for it. There's a reason they connecting with a monopole 
antenna it is part of the spiritual function of a human being but also because our spine is calcium which is a metal and it turns out it happens to be a good conductor the height of Jesus's spine in the Shroud of Turin is 72.05 inches times two which is an octave is 144.1 and that is the magic oh, number now that's intriguing okay that let me uh, you know we tease the audience uh, you know terribly enough let's let's talk about this weird story uh as i as i said to you when i called you and thank goodness you answered earlier this evening um i've been you know moving the radio around the house uh remember when i opened it and took it out of the box and charged it it started shattering right away uh, this was like several days after the December 4th test transmission. So it's like someone was still answering almost on a loop again and again and again. Um, I've moved it around the house. It only works in the living room. It only worked in a couple of places in the living room. It doesn't work down here in the studio. It doesn't work in the bedroom. It doesn't work in the kitchen. Uh, I haven't taken it to the garage. I probably should do that. But it, it will not work in the library where there's, there's a computer upstairs that's connected to the computers down here. And I wanted to, you know, connect it to all of the computers so I could do different kinds of recording. Would not respond. Just sat it in front of the library computer, just sat there, dead as a doornail. So this afternoon, after several days where, except for an occasional chirp, it just sits there, dark, and it's the radio when... When it gets a signal, when it does these chirps that you've been listening to, the dial lights up, the little LCD um, crystal, which shows you the frequencies, lights up. There's a bright green light that tells you're receiving a transmission. That lights up so you can actually, if you turn the sound all the way down, you can see the radio is responding. Even if you can't hear it, you can see it. So it's sitting about 20 feet away through an open archway from the library into the living room. Um, it's sitting in a pyramid built by a friend of ours, Charlie, back in North Carolina, that kind of mimics the geometry of the uh, mega Russian pyramids that the uh, Russian oligarch, I forget his name, uh, put up around Moscow some years ago. Uh, and had all kinds of interesting things happening in terms of sensitizing materials, pepper, salt, liquids, things like that. So I put the radio in the pyramid and it's been sitting there for the last several days doing absolutely nothing. So I'm sitting getting ready for tonight's show at about quarter after seven mountain time. And after days of doing nothing, suddenly the Baofeng radio in the pyramid comes to life and starts chattering just like it did the night of December 4th. And I'm 20 feet away from it. And I'm looking at it, and I picked up the phone, and I called you, David, and what did I ask you? You asked me if Jimmy had done a transmission tonight. Yes. And we asked him. You, you sent him a text, and you haven't received an answer yet because he, he, no. could, he could be on his way back from uh, California. He, was, he drives. See, That's what I want to find out. I want to find out if these require a transmission on the big antenna or because Jimmy has shown me how to use them without the big antenna and get a response. Yeah, but you There's didn't a... use your handheld Baofeng radio to send anything, right? No, no. And I know I, I know I Keith didn't. I don't send anything. 
I, I only listen. Okay. Go ahead. I don't. I don't send anything because I I don't want to. I want the background pure. And again, we're we're like a week later, and I'm getting the perfect royal cubit again today, which means they're repeating the message for the. They've probably been repeating it over and over and over again to make sure. Well, remember, God, today is seven days from the time we did the show last Christmas replaying the stuff from Christmas Eve. And seven, I now know, because I've been following the COVID thing, and all this stuff's happening on a seven-day cycle, uh, which is really bizarre, and says to me we're looking at a natural frequency of the planet, of life, maybe consciousness, et cetera, et cetera. That's a whole other discussion. The point is, it's been seven days since we did our Christmas night show, showing the results that you calculated from the frequencies of all the qubits, right? So I'm right. sitting there 20 feet away, not even thinking about the radio. I'm thinking about how do I organize this person and that person? How do I meld in, you know, the usual pre-show programming stuff? And suddenly the radio comes to life and it starts chattering in obvious coded messages with spacing in between, just like John, you process, just like David processed, just like what I processed over the last, you know, uh, uh, over the Christmas weekend. So I called you up, and what did I say I'd like to do? Well, um, I, I said remember. I wanted to record it, and then what did I say? I can't remember. <laughs> I said I will bet you dollars to Navy Beans that if I go and try to record it, it will stop. Right. And that's exactly that, yeah. what it did. I put, so that, I plugged it in. I'm sitting there, and as soon as I plugged it in, nothing. And it was still running upstairs when I came downstairs, and that was like from quarter. Well, I, I actually got it set up about quarter of eight. So quarter of eight, quarter of nine, ten o'clock. I came down about uh, you know the, the bottom of the hour. It's been sitting up there connected to the computer, and I'll bet there's nothing because whatever's on the other end of the phone said, okay, Hoagland, you think you're so damn smart, take this. And they just turned <laughs> off the transmission. And nothing has a sense of humor like consciousness, right? So you, there's, there's no I've never. Way. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've never dealt with a radio where I'm trying to listen to somebody, and because they know I'm listening, they turn off the transmitter. Ever. Okay. But that's perfect. You see, that's defining it. It's distinguishing itself from technology. That's why I wish, you know, Georgia was still with us because this was the thing that's so amazing. It's conscious. It should yep. not be conscious. It should not be transcending the normal radio technology where you don't know who you're listening to and they don't know who they're transmitting to. This thing is alive. Well, Georgia would tell you that the the energy of the universe coming in through your chakras, and they go into the body, and there are touchdown points where pure energy meets dense physical matter. So the your throat chakra, there's energy coming in there, and there's a touchdown point inside your throat, and same with the other chakras. And you know, it makes me wonder if this message is telepathic and we're hearing the touchdown point. Define what you mean by a touchdown point. 
Um, our ears are, can hear 20 hertz to 20,000, so that's the touchdown point, that range. We're hearing telepathy from the hyperdimensional field uh, touching down into 3D time space. So why does it have to use a radio? Why doesn't it just transmit into our minds? Uh, possibly because we can't hear that or we're not listening. Also because we would go crazy. See, if it transmitted into our minds, it it needs to be audible. It needs to have an audible function. And I think, in a way, the the staff of Moses and the staff of the apostles in Mark 6, 1 through 8 it is about using it as a transducer in a way. So, so that that pole will let in any octave of the frequency of its wavelength. And therefore, your, your nervous system and your, your, the liquid membrane, in fact, the first transistors, I mean, I read the whole story, John Bardeen, Will Shockley, who, the three guys who made the transistor. Um, so what happens is in the beginning, the first transistor that worked was a liquid-based transistor. It, it was hydrated, just like we are. And the, the movements in the transistor were more efficient as a hydrated transistor, but they knew they couldn't keep them hydrated. So they had to have a dry transistor that was solid state that was not liquid. And of course, anything with water in it is really alive. So there would be higher properties of a liquid transistor. So our bodies, in a way, we have semiconductive and conductive bones. We have you know, electrically conductive nervous system and, and hydrated um, 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 circulatory system, and we have a membrane. Our skin is a membrane. So we're very sensitive to vibrations, especially induced vibrations from induction and transduction. So we're, we're, we're really a lot like the very first transistors that were developed. But when you're holding an antenna in your hand, the likelihood of causing subtle vibrations when it's really quiet in the early wee hours of the morning or when you're in the wilderness like, you know, Moses and, and you know, the spiritual apostles were, they would actually audibly hear it, I believe, when they're holding this antenna. And that's, again, why you see it. Why are all these, these pictograms in the ancient Egyptian temples, why do all... The, the high priest and priestesses and the kings and queens, why are they holding staffs? Is, is it just for fun? Is it because they can't walk? No, there's a function there, a real serious function. And that's how radio evolved. We eventually, you just said the question perfectly, because at MIT right now, they can cause you to hear without a phone in your hand. They can send you a radio message right into your brain and your your membranes will start vibrating and you'll audibly hear something and you won't have a phone in your hand so well there's this whole problem of the so-called havana syndrome i've been looking at very carefully and i don't think we're dealing with microwave technology i think we're dealing with something in a negative form that's basically the same kind of technology that we're dealing with in a positive form but this is being used very selectively on CIA agents and agents of other governments. 
You're right. They, it happened in the White House. That, that was on CNN and every newspaper in the yeah. world. There was a so why in, now um, is this happening? And it doesn't. You know, the mainstream is confused and befuddled because it doesn't model any normal electromagnetic radio technology they're familiar with. Like this doesn't. Uh, let me give you a few more stories. I've had now two weeks to play with this. Right. Mm-hmm. There are times when it's sitting on the coffee table when I will get up from the couch to go into the kitchen to refill my coffee, and it's mad at me. It starts <laughs> giving this long, wow. nonstop noise, like white noise, just screaming at me. And when I come back, it'll stop and it'll go back to chirping. Or <clears throat> I'll pick it up and I'll handle it with the left hand and it'll chirp. I move it to the right hand, it goes dead silent. I tip the antenna down horizontally, it goes silent. Tip it vertically, and it chirps again. I point it outside the pyramid, at the pyramid, and it will go silent. I turn the beam 90 degrees sideways, and it begins to chirp again. It is so non-technological, so non-normal radio, so responsive with a capricious, bratty teenager at the other end of the line, that tonight I knew, remember I told you, David, science is nothing if it's not prediction. I told you when I try to plug it in and record it, it'll just go quiet. And it did exactly what I predicted. Yeah, it's conscious. There's, see, Richard Feynman did these experiments. This beautiful tiny book called The Strange Theory of Light and Matter. And and he he stacked sheets of glass on top of each other, and he tried to to quantify why and when photons would bounce off sheet number one and penetrate to sheet number three and bounce off sheet number three. And he wanted to see if it was mathematically quantifiable. And he was so frustrated. He spent years on this. It was not. Photons behaved like human thought. And this is where both uh, Heisenberg and and, um, Niels Bohr come to Einstein, and they say that their consciousness is affecting the results of the experiments on the quantum level. That they had to remove the researchers from the experience because they were collapsing the wave function. So again, the radio is behaving like this, isn't it? It's actually behaving like a relationship. Like you might have an argument one day. <laughs> it might be really quiet. It is non-repeatable. It be, it's totally capricious. It's non-repeatable. And that, that see. To me, I look at this against the backdrop of the last 75 years of the UFO phenomenon, which in weird ways is mirroring this capricious, not wanting to go mainstream, to be under the radar, to hide in the shadows, to lurk at the edges between, horrible term, the normal and the paranormal. That's what this is doing. And yet when we broadcast that weekend, it was repeatable it was recordable, and it was like something else had taken control and enforced a repeatability. But it was after we had transmitted this information-rich signal several times into the cosmos, telling whoever's out there, we know the secret frequencies, we know the basis of reality, please send us a reply. And it did again and again and again. And tonight it started up 
And as soon as I tried to record it, it just said "fooey on you" and went absolutely silent. But that is that's the response. It's telling you it's conscious, and that's the message. It's moody. It's doing. The that problem is you can't so replicate you... that in a mainstream scientific model. The paradigm is but that's science. That's great about it. So, yeah, but it's not great. It. If, it's not great if other observers can't re- can't repeat this. Now it's fifty four minutes to the hour. So we need to spend the last few minutes here telling people what we need, how they can contribute. And let's start, David, with the other transmitters. We need some cooperative hams to transmit on these same frequencies and listen on the same frequencies, right? Yeah, we need other people with antennas because we need to Well, they need the whole rig. They need the, you know, they need the radio receiver, the transmitter, yep. the antennas. It's got to be movable in azimuth and elevation so we can point it like we'd like to beam our message, our packet to Comet Leonard because Comet Leonard through its perihelion distance to the sun, which is the phi angle is telling us it was sent by consciousness by somebody to test us. And that's two days. That's January 3rd, by the way. And January 7th, which is the anniversary of Nikola Tesla's death, it will be in a perfect triangle with Earth, Mercury, and Venus will be all and and Comet Leonard will all be in a perfect triangle. So we we have a window between the third and the seventh where we'd really like to transmit to it. But again, you know, it's Jimmy Blanchett who started this with us. I get we give him honor and credit for this, but we need to verify this on more than one antenna. Because that's how you do science. You need to repeat it. It has to be repeatable. The behavior of the radios are indicative of consciousness and language. In that language is moody. Language has moods. And language is sometimes quiet. And sometimes it's very chirpy, right? So it, it seems to have the qualities of an actual living being of some sort. And that is very it is, capricious and gets moody and mad and angry. And if you don't focus your attention on it, it shuts up. And if you do focus your attention, sometimes it shuts up. It's, in other words, it's acting like a, like, like a person, like a weird know, person. Funny. Sometimes it's my radio chirps a lot and I turn it off and I, I feel guilty. I feel like I just, shut out a conversation <laughs> and I'm like if I can totally understand everything you're saying I might not turn my radio off I'm there trying are to times David when I've been sitting on the other side of the room and I'll look at the radio and I'll say okay say something and it will have been silent for hours and it'll come on it'll start yeah. chirping I know that that's the getting into something a test my daughter and I did last night but I don't want to go into that yet but you don't have to press the call button. You no. can ask something without pushing the call button and wait. And we got answers last night. Well, and the question intention. is, what was that, John? With intention. But I'm not pushing the call button. That's what's interesting. So that means we're testing to see if, if it interfaces with consciousness. So if we think of this as a, as, a, as a loop, okay, if I, if I intend something and i send it literally a mental message it responds with a chirp or a series of chirps or whatever i don't have to physically do anything with the technology because one half of the loop is my consciousness going to whoever is wherever and they could be five dimensions away i mean there are no limits yet 
to what we're trying to figure out, and we got two minutes. So, guys, what else do we need besides we other need, transmitters? We need money. We need people who can do um, technological analysis. We need somebody who can set up a TV to receive at 144.1 and 432 megahertz. Um, we, there's a lot of tests we need to design. If, if you feel like you can help, please reach out to through the website and and you know identify yourself to us and 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 let's. I mean, this to me should be the most exciting news on the planet right now. Actually, coming into the year 2022, and I, I predict it will be a big year for UFOs. I'll study that tells me. And we could talk about that another time. But the year 2022 coming into 2023, there should be another major UFO event, according to this algorithm um, study that I did on all the major sightings in history. Well, based on my UFOs. data sources, I'm thinking it's going to be a lot closer, like March of this coming year. And right, next, March. And, and, and next Saturday, I will explain why. But there's a scientific reason that March could be the time frame. Hey guys, we're out of runway. I want to thank my guest tonight, Georgia Lambert, who had to leave us, unfortunately. Um, David Sarita, who is an extraordinary researcher. John Womack, who is both a uh, explorer, physically, metaphysically, and in terms of technology. And of course, our own uh, Keith Morgan. And I want to say, Kinthea's last night was tonight. I'm going to say a lot more about Kinthea next week. We just ran out of time. But I will miss her on the other side of midnight. But she's not far away, and she may be back. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. <laughs>